Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, we proudly bring to you Mormonism Live! Shut up and sit down. Well, this has been a fun 10 minutes that we've been having behind the scenes. Hey, we're going to, we'll play some catch up here in a few minutes, but how are you? I'm fine. Just mildly frazzled because no, of no technology. Biggie. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know what it was because these things happen from time to time. I've run into it every once in a while too, where, you know, either the mic or the headphones don't work inside StreamYard and you just had to do a reset on your computer real quick. And here we are up and running Mormonism live. This is episode 121. Joseph Smith's first vision in context, a comparative analysis. I'm also going to say to RFM, because you do it all the time, and I think it is important, March 29th, 2023, 6.28 in the evening. Uh, any thoughts from you before we kick this one off? Just that it should be 6.20 p.m., but that's all That's all behind us now. By that's the way, right. I'm showing off so that people can see my shirt. I, I love it. the live chat afterwards. I know people are interested. It is not Gambit. I don't have a Gambit t-shirt. I wouldn't be against it necessarily. Hey, you know about Gambit. Hey, I watched some cartoons when I was a kid. Oh, right. Well, I read some yeah. comic books when I was a kid. Nice. Anyway, I collected comic books. I did, and Gambit wasn't around when I was reading comic books back in the 70s, but he's a great addition to the X-Men team. He was a cool X superhero. Team. Yeah, cool superhero. Yeah, he just like charges. What is it? He psychically charges these cards, and he throws them, and they become all sorts of things. When they yeah. hit their targets. It's a nice little, you know, parlor trick. Oh, yeah. It's more than that. <laughs> Kaboom, baby. All right. Um, Can I? I oh, uh, sorry. I'm jumping in with the. I just wanted to say that um, I don't have, um, you know, just like a, a sack of a thousand dollars and I wouldn't be against it. You know, I'm, I'm just going to I just wanted to put that out there. A sack Is... of a thousand dollars. Yeah. Like thousand dollars. You know, I wouldn't be against it. I, I'm just kind of teasing. I, I feel like. Are you suggesting donations? RFM or is going to get. I feel like RFM is going to get a Gambit T-shirt because he's like, I don't have one. I'm oh, not against yeah, he'll have three one. of them in the mail this week, won't he? <laughs> okay, just I only want to say two words so about that. Saying, okay, I, just two words about that idea. Extra large. <laughs> and I would like my thousand dollars extra large too. <laughs> All right. Well, a thousand dollars actually is a large. There we go. All right. So uh, anything else from you, my friend, before we begin? No, I'm really excited about tonight's show. You've been doing a lot of research on this. This is yeah. an issue that I had not realized before the yeah. extent of it and the there ramifications. Are, yep. There's a couple of great websites out there that go into contemporary accounts of the first vision. By the way, if you're watching on YouTube, uh, you'll notice if you go down below the video, there is uh, a synopsis of the episode. If you click more It'll open up and all the resources that we use tonight are there. Um, also, tomorrow when we publish the audio to the podcast format on the website and all the websites where we post this, uh, all of those resources will be there as well. So not only is there a couple of good websites on the contemporary accounts of people having visions uh, around Joseph Smith, both you know 50 years before, 
up until even after his first vision. We'll talk about a couple maybe that are late. Uh, there's also a great conversation that uh, John DeLynn and uh, Mike from LDS Discussions have, and they touch on uh, the, this idea too. But I think, I think in this particular arena, we're going to put out the very best product that's out there in terms of covering this because we're going to show a ton of historical documentation tonight, and I'm really excited about it. And this so is going to be the up, best. The I best. think so. So I'm going to throw up on the screen. Uh, that's our our image for the for the episode tonight, but. I'll start, I'll start here with the slide number two. And the, just to note, the second Great Awakening, so the first Great Awakening um, was started at like 1740. But Maven, are you crumpling Maven, potato are you chips? Are your money? Sorry. <laughs> Sounds like you're putting it through one of those I think she doors. accidentally bumped herself onto the screen. All right, so <laughs> the second Great Awakening started in 1740, and uh, I believe, and in this... The first Great Awakening, I should say. Right. Then and they then hit the, the snooze one, button. What's that? Then they hit the snooze button after the first for Great like Awakening. A, for a brief decade or so. And then the yes. second Great Awakening happens uh, in the early to mid-1800s. And then the third Great Awakening, I think, is like the late 1800s or so. But there's kind of this 120-year period where uh, there's just a lot of like religious stuff going on. Revivals. Um, they talked about in here emotional preaching. Uh, lots of reform movements, lots of restoration movements that happen, not just Mormonism. And by the way, exactly the kind of thing that Joseph Smith is describing in the 1838 account with just crazy stuff. This is yeah. more than just the stuff I've grown up with, with Baptists, you know, slamming Pentecostals, slamming Mormons, slamming J-dubs. This was huge. This was everywhere. It was 24-7 religious fervor. Yeah. And so the time period is right around Joseph Smith, but then it's not just that. Uh, it's also noticing that this is the burned over district where the majority of this is happening, which is essentially the New York area surrounding Joseph Smith. And it's tons of it's visions of divine beings. There's tons of mysticism, people speaking in ton, tongues, uh, people falling down, body shaking like the, the Pentecostal stuff. And like uh, lots people of people in the Book of Mormon. Right. Lots of people having visions, um, a number of new religious groups. And several of them outside of Mormonism, but again, in the restoration sort of movement. Um, and so we're going to go into tonight about a dozen of the accounts. Now, I heard uh, Mike on the conversation on Mormon stories say that Richard Bushman's on the record saying that he knew of 33 people having uh, visions uh, around the time of Joseph Smith. Uh, we're going to go into about 12 of those tonight. And some of these are really interesting. And so I'm really excited for this. Isn't it amazing? It's like you couldn't swing a dead cat without hitting somebody who'd seen Jesus back in New York. Yeah. Nope. Everybody sees Jesus. Um, and we're and you'll see like some of these are so similar to the first vision. And it is of note that when the first vision is framed in the past by church leaders, it's often framed as Joseph Smith is restoring the fact that Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ are separate. Yes. And as we get into these accounts, we'll realize pretty quickly that there's multiple folks having visions completely unconnected to Joseph Smith on their end. We don't know about Joseph Smith on his end, but on their end, and they have no problem recognizing that God and Jesus are separate beings. Um, so not really something that was restored and lost. Right. Good point. Yeah. All right, so we'll jump here into the first one. The first one is Elias Smith. Uh, he's a preacher, 
physician, journalist, clergyman. Uh, Elias, along with the preacher Abner Jones, founded a group of Christian churches in New England that eventually merged with other like-minded regional groups to become a denomination known as the Christian Connection. Sounds like an old WWF wrestling tag team back in the 80s or something. But to me, it sounds Smith like found an old Kermit it. the Frog song. <laughs> Smith. Hey, wait, wait. Can you do I your like Kermit green. the Frog hey, mm, hey there, Miss Piggy. How are you? <laughs> All right. So. Um, Completely unrehearsed, folks. Uh, unrehearsed. That's right. That. We didn't practice this in the pre-show. That's not the reason we were a few minutes late. <laughs> in spite of how polished it may have looked. That's right. Um Smith, uh, Elias Smith founded the Herald of Gospel Liberty in 1808, spent his later years as a vigor, vigorous proponent and practitioner of the Thomasonian system of herbal medicine, though he and Thompson had a public dispute and falling out in 1827. A little bit of data there on him, but here's what makes Probably him really cool. Probably over the issue of using tobacco on cattle. <laughs> Probably, just for healing wounds. Bruises, <laughs> you know? Cattle bruise easy. Um this is an image from his book and uh, in the red and folks, I would highly suggest you make this full screen if you want to, um, but you may have to like back out at times if you want to participate in the comments. But I think at times full screen will allow you to kind of read some of this, but here's what he says in terms of his vision. Uh, he says he went into the woods one morning after a stick of timber. Uh, and then it skips ahead a little bit. He says, as I walked along a large log that lay above the snow, my foot slipped and I fell partly under the log. While this situation, while in this situation, a light appeared to shine from heaven, not only onto my head, but into my heart. This was something very strange to me and what I had never experienced before. My mind seemed to rise in that light to the throne of God and to the Lamb. And while thus gloriously led, what appeared to my understanding was expressed in Revelation. He gives a scripture, but he writes it in Roman numerals, and I'm not going to take the time to figure out what that means. But, and I looked and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Sion and with him, 144,000 having his father's name written in their foreheads. The lamb once slain appeared to my understanding. And while viewing him, I felt such love to him as I never felt to anything earthly. Uh, and then he goes on about how marvelous this experience was. The thing that I caught my eye, obviously he sees Jesus Christ uh, he went into a, a set of, you know, he went into the woods. So that's a similarity. And then at the end, he says uh, he was unspeakably happy and shall never see trouble again as he walked along. And I remember the Joseph Smith stories, right? When he's going back to the house and he's just so thrilled that he's seen God and Jesus and he now has answers. Yeah. So uh, those are the three similarities here. This is kind oh, of a minor another. one. What's there's that? Another. By the way, that's Revelation 14.1. Those of us who majored in Roman numerals Love in it. high school are here to help you Thank out. Thank you. Um, but also, it is not possible for me to tell how long I remained in that situation as everything Ooh. earthly was gone from me for some time. Look at that. Very similar to Joseph Smith, too. He didn't know how much time had passed. It's the lost time phenomenon. Yeah. So this vision has some similarities to Joseph Smith. And a lot of and UFO sightings, too. You got it. And the, the next one is Billy Hibbard. Uh, he lived from 1771 to 1884. He His occupation is listed as a Methodist Episcopal minister and circuit rider in New York, United States. I'm sure that came from a census record. Um, but Billy Hibbard writes a book about his experience of religion. 
And uh, here's what Billy says. And if you'll start in the, there's some on the left red outlined column there in the very middle of that, there's a bunch of words in yellow for here and there. There are some words in yellow, but the ones that are all together, that's where I'm going to start. And he said, I thought how happy must Jesus Christ have been when he suffered for sinners. It would yield some satisfaction to me if my misery can be a cause of happiness to others. But when I came to the place of prayer, had kneeled down and closed my eyes with my hands uplifted toward the heavens, I saw Jesus Christ at the right hand of God looking down upon me and God the Father looking upon him. The look of Jesus on me removed the burden of my sins. While he spake these words, be faithful unto death, and this shall be thy place of rest. I had never, I never had seen Jesus Christ before, nor heard his voice, nor had ever had a sense of his intercession at the right hand of God for me till now. And so he sees Jesus Christ on the right hand of God. You know, you and I in prep for this conversation, we had talked about some of the DNC sections, section 76 of the Doctrine and Covenants has Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon uh, claiming to see Jesus on the right hand of God. Um, I was telling you earlier in our conversation before the show that that sort of language also happens within Trinitarian movements as well, that folks, as well as the New Testament, will mention seeing Christ on the right hand of the Father. And I don't know that such necessarily has to be imposed as two separate beings, because you see that sort of language in lots of places. Yeah, especially but just, Acts, I'm sorry, Acts chapter 7, mm -hmm. the martyrdom of Stephen is the famous place for it. Right. And, and even in Catholicism, where people have visionary experiences, some of that language is found, and they obviously think that all three are the same being. Except that here, he goes a step further, and he says, Jesus is looking down on me, and God is looking down on Jesus. So he's making a point of establishing that they're two different people. And like the first vision where the father looks to the son in the 1838 account and says, this is my beloved son. Here, in a sense, you have the father turning to the savior and the savior turning to this Billy Hibbert and forgiving his sins. So, Right. The other thing I notice of interest is that apparently his reason for going out, excuse me, I've got a phone ringing. I won't take it. Sorry. Whoever's calling me right now, I can't take your call. Sorry. Doing a show. <laughs> so... The other thing that's interesting about it is the thing that uh, is the, the catalyst for his going to pray is reading from the Bible. Yeah, that happens to a few people, doesn't it? Maybe that's to be expected. I don't know. But I do notice that he says, when one Sabbath, having been reading of the sufferings of Christ, I had an impression to go in secret and pray. And that's when he goes out to the woods, right? Yeah. And this is his first experience, but he has others as well. And so I'll turn here to another section. Hmm. Um, he says, uh, let's see here. Uh, I'm lifting up my hands. What are you lifting up your hands for? Because that's where it starts. Oh, I got you. I, I lifted up my hands and eyes to heaven and began to pray for the presence of God to be with us. And as I looked up, I saw heaven open and Jesus at the right hand of God, and the heavenly host surrounding the throne, adoring the Father and Son in the most sublime strains. Wait a second. At, so he saw many angels in his vision, too. He did, just like the 1835 account. At this sight, my soul caught the heavenly fire, and I began to clap my hands and cried out, glory, glory, glory. This awaked my wife, 
by the way, here he's having a vision and nobody wakes up in the room, which reminds me of the visitation with Moroni and uh, all the brothers sleeping in the bed and nobody wakes up and Joseph just didn't clap a bunch and wake wake his brothers up, you know? Until he starts clapping his hands and yelling, glory, glory. Right, glory, That's glory, glory. The dead. This awaked my wife and she spoke and said, why are you very happy? This awaked me while I was crying glory. So that's another vision he has. And then, uh, oops, that's wait, the a second. wait a Please. second. Wait a second. So he's indicating this was a dream. Yeah, some sort of, you know, again, there's always this debate in Mormonism of dreams and visions and which is which and whether like in the body dreams. or out of the body. Yeah. Right. But the just the, the last line that I just picked up on was it, where, where he says, I was sorry. What, this awaked me when his wife says, well, you're very happy, and then that awakes him. How does she know he's happy? Okay, I'm not going to try and decipher this on the air, but I don't know how she knows he's happy if this is all being exclusively a dream and it's not really happening in such a way as to wake her up. And it should be pitch dark at whatever time of night this is too. Uh, Probably, yeah. Yeah, so, and then I don't have a slide for this one, but he also says in another place, he says, and we beheld the glory of the Son on the right hand of the Father and saw holy angels and them who are sanctified before the throne worshiping God and the lamb who worship him forever and ever. That might've been in there, but I don't think it was in this one. But again, here's Billy Hibbard and he sees, he sees Jesus Christ. He sees heavenly father. Uh, he sees holy angels uh, and he writes about it. Um, the next one I wanted to talk about was Norris Stearns. And I don't have a ton of information on him, but he lived from 1789 to 1845. And he wrote a couple of different uh, pamphlets um, and this is one of them. I think these are the same pamphlet, but it's the different cover for it. Uh, second edition, first edition, that kind of thing. Can I just say, you... it's really interesting to me in this age of pamphlets, right? Yeah. It is the age of pamphlets and that had gone in the colonies and everything. But so many people are writing down their religious experiences. This is titled The Religious Experience of Nora Stearns, written by divine command. So apparently God tells him he's got to write it down. So we get this pamphlet that's published and now preserved and available for use on the show. But when I was looking at all these people, and these are just the ones you're talking about today, it just seems like everybody is seeing Jesus. Some are seeing Jesus and God the Father. A lot of them are seeing angels. And it's almost like this phenomenon, which I believe is going on today. I'll just explain it. You know, I got a YouTube feed and I am shocked at how many people are now claiming near-death experiences. They go see God, they come back with a message, and thousands and hundreds of thousands of people are clicking because they want to hear what this message is from God, from this person who came back from the dead. And it's just like they all have the same template, and the more popular people become for reporting these kinds of experiences, the more experiences seem to be had by more people of the same stripe. Yeah. And... They all, you know, some of these folks are starting their own religious movements. Um, some of these folks, their messages uh, of what God told them, uh, some of these will be similar, of course, but some of these will be a little different. And so it seems like an age of religious confusion, right? Like, and I know Joseph says that to some degree, but what Joseph Smith isn't claiming is that a hundred other people are having visions and they feel just as strongly about their message. They're seeing things to the same sort of, dramatic end that Joseph does and they go off and do something very different than Joseph, which seems like a very confusing God, doesn't it? 
Yeah, we'll, we'll talk more about the psychology of this later on because I don't want to get in the way of your chronology. Yeah. But, I mean, I had to deal with this at yeah. some point. We get this far removed from Joseph Smith and we lose track of the fact that he's coming from a situation in which lots and lots of people are reporting first vision type experiences that he yeah. is not alone. He's not unique. He's not sui generis. He is part of a much bigger pattern of what's going on in his neighborhood. Yep. Yep. So Norris Stearns is the next one, 1789 to 1845. We talked about the pamphlets here. I'm not going to read this whole thing, but his vision's up there. And folks, if you're watching and you want, feel free to pause it. You can read the whole thing and then you can come back to the conversation if you want to. But here's what, um, here's what Norris Stearns says. He says, at length, as I lay apparently upon the brink of eternal woe. In other words, Joseph Smith also felt despair as he was having his uh, intercession trying to find God right in the grove. And uh, he says, seeing nothing but death before me, suddenly there came a sweet flow of love of God to my soul, which gradually increased. At the same time, there appeared a small gleam of light in the room above the brightness of the sun. Then at his meridian, yeah, and then at his meridian, folks need to know that meridian means noonday. The middle so place. Joseph, what's that? The mid place. Yes. Right. At noon. Yeah. Yep. So Joseph also refers to uh, at noonday. And so here you go. At the same time, there appeared a small gleam of light in the room above the brightness of the sun. Then at his meridian, which grew brighter and brighter as the light and love increased. And then skipping down a little, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. God knoweth. There I saw two spirits, which I knew at first sight. But if I had the tongue of an angel, I could not describe their glory. And then he says a little further down, he says, One was my God, one was God, my maker, almost in bodily shape like a man. His face was, as it were, a flame of fire, and his body, as it had been, a pillar in a cloud. Below him stood Jesus Christ, my Redeemer, in perfect shape, like a man, his face was not ablaze, but his countenance of fire being bright and shining. You see similarities there too, obviously. I do. And there also seems to be, a, a, it's important when they see both to put the father in a superior position in location to the son too, to some of these people. Yeah, maybe that's what makes Joseph Smith's vision true, is that they're side by side. Um, I'm not sure. Does he actually say they're side by side? Well, I no, but he doesn't. It seems as though that's the case. That's the way it's portrayed in the artwork. But that's the artist's fault. I'm well, sorry. Well, true. In the 1835 version, one comes down and then joined by the second one, right? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that darn artwork gets you every time. It's not um, just the LDS apostles who enter every room in order of seniority. God and Jesus do the same thing. Yeah. And uh, it's going to be, so this will be some of the parallels, but Norris Stearns experienced the vision and he published it in 1815 in Greenfield, Massachusetts, not far from where the Joseph, not far from where Joseph Smith Sr.'s family lived in Vermont. And LDS leaders have insisted separate beings in the Godhead was one of the truths. We mentioned this in the beginning, one of the truths that had been lost from the world until Joseph Smith's first vision in fact, the article I was reading said it was a major point in the late Apostle Hubie Brown's 1950 sermon, Profile of a Prophet. And in that talk, Hubie Brown makes that argument that Joseph is, that the idea that they're separate beings was lost and that Joseph, by seeing Jesus Christ and God the Father, 
was restoring a truth back to the earth. And I remember being taught that in the uh, late 90s, early 2000s um, in manuals and Sunday schools and things. But it seems as though once you study these contemporary accounts, it's no longer understood to be a lost item. Like there are lots of folks who consider them to be separate, Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ. Right. I did a show on it a couple of years ago with uh, Joseph Fielding Smith writing that this shows, this is an evidence that Joseph Smith was telling the truth because nobody else would have ever claimed to have seen God the Father as a separate being from Jesus Christ back in the 1830s. I think this has been picked up on by, is it Ta Tad Collister? Some uh, contemporary uh, general authority type has Tad's, been. Tad's big for that. He's always trying to connect the dots on how the old church was versus the modern church and trying to say they're the same thing. I think it's he, but somebody is doing that as well. Of course, the, the point of my podcast was that even as Joseph Fielding Smith was writing how this is a great evidence that Joseph Smith really did see them because nobody in their right mind would have said, excuse me, what, what, what we would have expected, he wrote, what we would have expected if it were a fake story would be Joseph Smith coming out of the grove and saying he saw only one divine being. And Joseph Fielding Smith is making this argument in writing, knowing that the 1832 account is in his safe, tucked away and hidden, in which Joseph Smith claimed to have seen only one being. Isn't that strange? Uh, a little hypocritical. Yeah. Yeah. He's he's hid the one piece of evidence away that would shoot his theory down. And so he proposes his theory knowing that he has the evidence hidden away. Yeah. That's yeah. bad faith. But they've, but they've never hid anything. No, I mean, Jesus wouldn't do that. No. All right, so the next one, so these are all that you can, I'm not going to read all these, but these are all the similarities that connect between Nor Norris Stern's experience and Joseph Smith's experience on some level. So there's all of those, and, you know, it's almost like chiasmus there. Um, right, and they, they seem to have a, also this common element of being filled with joy afterward, which, of course, is exactly what Joseph Smith reports in his 1832 account of the first vision after seeing Jesus and having his sins remitted. Right, right, totally. Um, okay, so the next one here is John Samuel Thompson. Uh, he's a teacher at the Palmyra Academy. By the way, remember, all of these accounts occur in the Burned Over District in the same time period as Joseph Smith. Mid-1700s uh, and mostly late 1700s, 1770 to 1830 or so. Um, and so this is really stuff that Joseph could have had access to people's stories uh, newspaper accounts, uh, ministers coming on revivals, which we'll get to one of those in a moment. Uh, but John Samuel Thompson is a teacher at the Palmyra Academy, and he declared in 1825 uh, that Jesus appeared in a glare of brightness exceeding tenfold the brilliance of the meridian sun. And so you end up again with, you start to notice patterns. There are multiple folks here mentioning God the Father and Jesus Christ. There are multiple folks mentioning more brilliant than the noonday sun. Um, you already got, I think, at least one occurrence of somebody going into the woods. We're going to have a couple more of those. But the similarities, Joseph Smith's vision isn't anything unique, and we'll kind of see that over and over again. Um, but again, brilliancy of the meridian noonday sun. Yeah, you um, see the competition and the one-upmanship that's going on here? This isn't, the brightness isn't just as much as the noonday sun, it's tenfold the brilliance of the noonday sun. Yeah. And the next person's going to say, well, I saw it, but it was a hundred times brighter than the noonday sun. 
Yeah, it's one of those growing fish stories, huh? Mm-hmm. Next one is Asa Wild. I've got his birth date, 1794. I don't know when he died, uh, but Asa Wild. Uh, he was about a dozen years older than Joseph Smith, uh, and it is probable the two never met. Joseph, like Joseph, Wild was born in Vermont in 1794 at West Fairley, about 20 miles northeast of Joseph Smith's birth, uh, birthplace of Sharon. Most of what we know about Asa Wild comes from a pamphlet he published in 1824 entitled A Short Sketch of the Religious Experience and Spiritual Travels of Asa Wild of Amsterdam. And then I got this from the BYU article, The Prognostication of Asa Wild. So the church behind the scenes, not that you would know it exists unless you went looking for it, but the church actually has written about some of these men and compared Joseph Smith to these other visions. And of course they pull out the apologetics that this is in sort this in a way, this is evidence that Joseph Smith's telling the truth because look at all these other people who have very similar visions, but as we'll get to later, the timeline uh, within Joseph Smith's life compared to these other visions, there are some problems there. And so Asa Wild says, it seemed as if my mind was struck motionless as well as into nothing before the awful and glorious majesty of the great Jehovah. He then spake. He also told me that every denomination of professing Christians had become extremely corrupt. And Mike noticed this in the conversation on Mormon stories, but corrupt is a word that Joseph Smith also uses, I think in the 1838 account. Yeah. The professors um, thereof are all corrupt. Yeah. The creeds are an abomination and the professors thereof are all corrupt. Yeah. And so here you have essentially the same sort of phrase that's in a pamphlet that is uh, not that we know Joseph Smith read this, but it does seem strange that here's another person having a vision and they're using similar language to what Joseph Smith uses. I will tell you that if I wanted to gather a following right now, what I would do is I would do a YouTube video claiming to have died, gone to heaven and coming back with some details that'll blow your mind and a message that's generic and really not that impressive, except for the fact that he got it directly from Jesus and watch it go wild. Yeah. And, and if you added in that you thought all the other churches on the world were corrupt and that someday you would be an instrument in God's hands, you might start to develop quite a following. Don't tempt me. <laughs> All right, so Asa Wild, and then I thought this one was really cool, Solomon Chamberlain, and um, I've, I've heard all this stuff spoken everywhere, but I've got a little extra point to make with this one, which I think is interesting. Solomon Chamberlain is the first to evangelize the printed Book of Mormon, and that surprised you, RFM. I didn't know yes, that either. because of Samuel Smith. We all know Samuel Smith was the first missionary with the Books of Mormon in the knapsack and going out and handing them out to people like Brigham Young's brother or somebody. Yep, Samuel Smith, but it's not. He preached, Solomon Chamberlain preached from the proof sheets during a tour among Baptist and Reformed Methodist in New York and Upper Canada, while the Grandin Press, the Grandin Press in Palmyra, New York, prepared volumes for publication. Prior to his encounter with the Book of Mormon, Chamberlain published his own visionary experience as a sketch of the experience of Solomon Chamberlain, 1829, he also wrote an account in Beaver City, uh, Utah, July 11th, 1858, about his spiritual experience foretelling the coming of Mormonism. So here is Solomon Chamberlain's uh, ministering license with the church. 
This is to certify that Solomon Chamberlain is an elder in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and has this day received a license from under our hands at Nauvoo, Hancock, Illinois, October 7th, 1840. And just like Francis um, Gladden Bishop, if you remember right, he had a ministering license too, but he was out ministering earlier than that. This also seems like a late license. In other words, Solomon seems to be out earlier doing church work, but uh, for whatever reason, Joseph Smith and the church chose kind of in that early 1839, 1840 range to start giving its uh, its missionaries a license to take with them. And so he has this license here. I'm really um, interested in this thing you said about that uh, Solomon Chamberlain had visions or revelations oh, that it, predicted it, Mormonism. So it's before 1830. Is that correct? Yeah, these are really good. Um, so I'm going to read this. It's kind of hard to see this on the screen. So if you make it full screen, but here's what he says. He says, about that time, I had a vision of hell, which alarmed me very much, and I reformed. Then I had another vision showing me the three heavens and their glories. Wait, and the, the three th heavens? The three heavens. Okay. And their glories. And the third far exceeded the others. My vision so alarmed me that I was in sorrow and repentance for many days on account of my sins. I thought I would give all the world if I could find a man who could tell me what I should do to be saved. I sought much, but could find none. I thought I would go to the Presbyterian minister and inquire of him. And when I asked him what I should do to be saved, he appeared like a man astonished. Now, honestly, if you Come went on. to a Presbyterian minister and you said, what do I need to do to be saved? You know damn well that minister has that answer on the tip of his tongue. I would hope so. Otherwise, he should be defrocked. Yeah, you would think. Um, Can you imagine somebody coming up to a couple of Mormon missionaries and, or a bishop yeah. and saying, what do I need to do to be saved? And, and they're just astonished. Holy, wow. Well, maybe they were just astonished at the question. Uh, he said, you must, wait for the, you must wait the Lord's due time, and in his own due time, he will bring you in. That's not, no, no minister is doing that. A minister is going like, here's the water, let's get baptized. I would think so. So he continues. He says, when I could find no one who could tell me what to do, no one, no one in this area can tell him what to do to be saved. There's no freaking I, minister or what priest or anybody who can tell him what to do to be saved. Does this account sound believable so far? Well, it doesn't. I'm not, I'm not sure why he doesn't do what everybody else does and just go to the Bible and figure it out. Yeah. He says, I decided I would go to God and plead for mercy. And if I went to hell, I would go praying. I cried unto the Lord night and day for forgiveness of my sins, like Enos of old, until the length the Lord said. Okay, wait a length, second. Wait a second. Yeah. Okay, we just got a, a Book of Mormon reference there. Yeah, now this is written in 1859, I think. Okay, so obviously he converts to Mormonism. He's read the Book of Mormon. He knows about yep. Enos praying all the way through the night, not night and day, but still. This is still. like four. Yeah, he's in Utah by this point. And this is like four years from his death. Okay. Um, so this is at the end of his life. Uh, he says, let me find it again here. Sorry, look for Enos. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking. Here we go. Enos of old. called him in, you know, grade school. Like Enos of old until at length the Lord said, quote, Solomon, thy sins are forgiven thee. Go in peace and, end, and sin no more. My heart then leaped with joy unspeakable. 
after this experience, I joined the Methodist order. Now, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Who else did that? As I thought they were the most right of any on earth. About the year 1814 or 1850, the Reformed Methodist broke off from the Episcopal Methodist. I found them to be more right than the Episcopal and joined them. About this time, the Lord showed me in a vision that there was no people on earth who were right and that faith was gone from the earth with the exception of a few people and that all churches were corrupt. There's the word corrupt again, right? I further saw, let me, I got to see if I can, I further saw, I won't make it big that way. Let's try this again. Um... Sorry, the the slide number is sitting in the front of the page. Here we go. I further saw in vision that he would again or he would soon raise up a church that would be after, and we're going to turn the page here, the apostolic order, that there would be in it the same powers and gifts that were in the days of Christ, and that I should live to see that day, that there would be a book come forth, like unto the Bible. A book. And the people would I know, isn't this amazing? And the people would be guided by it as well as the Bible. This was in the year 1816. I then believed in gifts and miracles and the Latter-day Saint, as the Latter-day Saints now do. And because I believed in these things, I was much persecuted and called deluded. This vision I received from an angel or spirit from the eternal world who told me these things. About that time, about the time that Joseph Smith found the gold record, I began to feel that the time was drawing near that the Lord would in some shape or other bring forth his church. Um, what do you think? That's a, if that's true, that's a pretty marvelous experience and would be a great evidence that the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is true. I think so. And I think that it may be that none other than Richard Lyman Bushman in his book, Joseph Smith Rowling may have actually mentioned that on page 113, sort of as an evidence of the fact that this guy learned about, Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon in a vision from God before the Book of Mormon came forth. That's yeah. impressive. And I even have Bushman here uh, talking about, this might even be what he says in the book. I don't know, but I oh, know he's is. on the record. I was going through the slides Please. that you put together, by the yeah. way. And I thought, you know, if it's Richard Bushman, it's probably in Redstone Rolling. I can look up Solomon Chamberlain, which he spells I-N instead of A-I-N at the end. So there may be some confusion about how to spell his name correctly, but it's definitely the same cat on page 113. But you've got the the quote right there. Do you want to read it? Uh, Yeah, I'll read it from the book. See how this goes. Uh, Thomas Marsh, who had heard of the Gold Bible while visiting Lyons, New York, was at age 28, a disillusioned Methodist and a seeker. Then it comes to Solomon. Solomon Chamberlain, a Lyons resident. So that's the city in New York, heard of the Book of Mormon in 1829 when a journey to Upper Canada brought him within a mile of the Smith house. He had long believed that, quote, there was no people on the earth that was right and that faith was gone from the earth, excepting a few, and that all churches were corrupt, period, end of quote. You read that part. In a vision, this is going on with Bushman speaking, in a vision, he had seen a church raised up, quote, after the apostolic order, unquote, with the same powers, and gifts that were in the days of Christ. And you read that as well. When Chamberlain called on the Smiths, his first question was, is there anyone here that believes in visions or revelations? Uh, I guess he changed his question from, you know, what do I need to do to be saved? But that got old after a while, I guess. 
So his first question now is, um, uh, do you, is there anybody here who believes in visions and revelations? Hiram replied, yes, we are a visionary house. And gave Chamberlain 64 pages of Book of Mormon proofs to take into Canada. Soon after the organization of the church, Joseph Smith baptized him, Chamberlain, in Seneca Lake. Yeah. There's, there's a problem with this story, though. And it's that in 1829, Solomon uh, Chamberlain writes a pamphlet on his incredible spiritual experiences. And guess what's missing in 1829? I don't know. Certainly not this one, because this was a pretty impressive spiritual experience that he had before 1829. Yeah, telling him that the true church would fall into his lap and that all the churches were corrupt and he saw the three heavens and all of that. But, But nope. It's not in here. So in 1858, Solomon Chamberlain says that in 1816, he had a vision where he was told all of the churches were corrupt, that God would raise up a church in the apostolic order with the same powers and gifts. And he was told that this time had was soon at hand when that church would show itself to him and he would have the opportunity to join it. But in 1829, when he writes his pamphlet about his most profound spiritual experiences, he mentions nothing of the vision in 1816, a vision, by the way, which sounds very similar to Joseph Smith's story. And at very, uh, at several places when he's talking to ministers and asking everyone in the town how to be saved, the way he responds just doesn't seem very reasonable. Well, obviously Solomon Chamberlain considered this vision too sacred to write down in a pamphlet. (laughs) Yeah. Or or it's bullshit. <laughs> or, you know, he was just, you heard about how he's persecuted for sharing that vision. Oh, he didn't yeah. want to write it down because he was worried about further persecution. Yeah. yeah. So the Can one I make a serious I... comment though, please, this is the very issue that you've put your finger on with this example that happens. There's a cluster of stories told by people who later join the church that they saw something absolutely miraculous in the skies, battles between armies and all sorts of things marching across the sky, which they recount later, but later they recall that this happened on the night that Joseph Smith was going to the hill to get the plates. This, you you remember that one, don't you, Bill? Yeah, so the whole thing is that we have a cluster of accounts of people who want to be in on this and know it's coming by revelation before it happens. And therefore, after the fact, they create these stories to give them some kind of preeminence or some kind of credibility. I'm not sure exactly what it is. Stature, position, those kinds of things, because they were good enough, righteous enough, chosen enough. For God to reveal to them before the church came forth that the church was coming forth and that there would be a book coming forth in addition to the Bible and all this other kind of stuff. What you have here, though, which we don't have in the other accounts, is a piece of evidence that suggests strongly that Solomon Chamberlain made this story up after joining the church and that it didn't really happen in 1816, as he later claimed. Especially when during the Second Great Awakening in the Burned Over District, you're asking ministers and everyone else in the town how to be saved, and nobody has an answer, and the best you get is somebody being astonished. Yeah, Yeah. Uh, that one rang not exactly correct to me, too. It's more of his way of indicting all the other 
false Christian churches, which he now knows are false because he joined Mormonism, right? Yeah. And Mormonism is the only one that's right, which is also why it is that he also puts in there that everybody's corrupt except for a few. We have to have that little footnote in there because it's got to, you know, account for Joseph Smith and his family, presumably. So there's a few who are on the earth. And uh, yeah, it's just really, really interesting. And I, what I take from this is to take with a large grain of salt the other stories that exist in, in Mormonism and that many of us have heard and sometimes are recounted in class in church about Brigham Young or whoever or Parley P. Pratt seeing these visions before it was ever brought forth before they ever met Joseph Smith or knew anything about Mormonism. And I would ask if this evidence worked against the church, if, if Solomon Chamberlain was writing in 1858 about something that happened in 1816 and was, and this was evidence against the church of what he was saying, the apologist would immediately point out the significant amount of time that has passed uh, and sh and explain that this is a late record and hence shouldn't be as trustworthy. And mm -hmm. I just, I find that strange because in this instance, what's what Solomon Chamberlain writes in 1858, even though it's contradicted by his opportunity when he's writing in 1829, um, they would have no problem using this as evidence in spite of the fact that 42 years have gone by. Yeah. You know, a similar story is in the autobiography of Parley P. Pratt, which I read for the first time when I was on my mission in Japan. Mm. I got a bootleg copy smuggled into me. This is the kind of rebellious missionary I was. We're only allowed to read the scriptures, Jesus the Christ, and articles of faith. But I got the autobiography of Parley P. Pratt in there to read. But he talks about before the temple endowment is restored, walking along from someplace to another place, probably on a mission. It's in the evening, it's at night, and he sees this grand vision in the heavens which is like this line or this point of light that comes down from the sky and then he describes it and what he ends up describing is the the signs of the holy priesthood that are in the garments and it sort of makes all these things and opens up and it goes like this and it goes it's like the opening of outer limits ymca that's the one yeah. that's the one but you know it's just the it's the same kind of thing that by vision you know after i find out about the endowment and the marks of the holy priesthood now suddenly i'm going to remember back to when i had a vision showing me this was coming yeah yep um as you point out lots of folks want to be part of the restoration and so they they seem way late to be making comments about things that happened before the church originated um, and put themselves into these magical events so that they can have some connection to it yeah, but I'll guarantee all of these stories that support the story of Mormonism are greeted quite warmly by oh, yeah. the members of the church and Joseph Smith as well, because not only do they raise the statue of the person telling the story, they also buttress the truth claims of Joseph Smith. Yeah. It's a win-win. Yeah. But wait, there's more. The next one is Charles Grandison Finney. And, and actually, Charles is the person who first coined the term burned over district. He's a big uh, deal. Yeah, yeah, he's a big deal. Uh, he he reminds me of Hosea Stout with his look. You'll see it in one of the pictures here in one of the next slides. But uh, you know, he doesn't he, look I like think a... he's an attractive man. I think he was probably really big at the the single adult dances back then. <laughs> he was an American Presbyterian minister and leader in the Great and Second Great Awakening in the United States. Finney was best known as a passionate revivalist preacher from 1825 
1835 in the burned over district in upstate New York in Manhattan. And he recounts his conversion experience in his memoirs. We won't read it per se, but we'll note some of the connections here. Finney felt despair over his, the eternal state of his soul. Finney chose to grow, go into a grove of woods to pour out his soul in solitude. Uh, upon making his petition, Finney found that he could not pray. When he attempted to pray, he became dumb, having nothing to say to God. Rustling of leaves nearby led him to believe that other individuals were in his presence. That sound familiar? 1835 account. Yep. Ultimately, that thought led him to such a sense of conviction of personal wickedness that it took possession of him. Charles attempted to pray. Again, being dumb, right? Because Joseph said it like, stop my tongue, and I, I couldn't speak any words. Charles attempted to pray several times without success, didn't Joseph? Leading him to the verge of despair. He recollected that a great sinking and discouragement came over me at this point. I felt almost too weak to stand upon my knees. Finney saw a light and Jesus Christ appeared to him. And Charles Finney also endured persecution for sharing his experience. The other cool thing about Charles Finney is if we look at the uh, Palmyra Reflector in 1831, there's the picture, by the way, that look. That looks like somebody who would team up with Hosea Stout to, to poison Samuel Smith right there. I'm ready to repent right now. <laughs> the Reverend, so I it, I, sur, or I squared it off in red on the second page. So I put the cover page of the newspaper, the page that the item occurs in, and then I enlarged it over on the right above the picture. The Reverend Mr. Finney of Revival Memory will preach at the Presbyterian Meeting House on Thursday next. 1831. One year before Joseph Smith writes the very first account of his first vision, and I again, I'm, I don't know this, but I would have a hunch that if Mr. Finney had an incredible spiritual experience where he was visited by the Lord, then I would anticipate that wherever he goes to preach that he shares his conversion experience because that's going to have a profound effect on the audience. It is difficult to believe that Joseph Smith was not aware of this experience. And I think it's probably likely that he showed up in person at at least one of the preaching engagements of the Reverend Finney and probably heard the Reverend Finney's first vision experience himself. Yeah. And, and I think there is a good chance that it happened. I didn't find any evidence you know, to, uh, for or against that. But the fact that this famous preacher... Uh, is in Palmyra. Again, he started in 1825. He kind of goes to 1835. He's right in the middle of his kind of prime of doing this uh, this preaching in the burned over district. You would think that lots of folks among the Mormons would have showed up to hear this. 1838 account, I think, is where Joseph Smith said that he visited these, uh, these sermons, these churches, these mm -hmm. meetings as often as occasion would permit. Permit. Mm -hmm. Joseph Smith himself tells you he was most likely there. Yeah. I wouldn't have missed that. No. Um, and then the next one we've gone over before in a previous episode, Francis Gladden Bishop. This was Mormonism Live 110, Succession Crisis, Orgies, and Sacred Relics. Uh, we discussed his early spiritual experiences that led him to believing his mother's prophecies that he was the flying role. Remember that? Yes. And even included him claiming that he was ordained to the priesthood by Nephi, one of the disciples of Christ in the Book of Mormon, and two other Nephite disciples, 
heavenly messengers who came in the false identity of Peter, James, and John. Uh, just uh, you, you remember that, right? Vaguely, yes. It was an exciting <laughs> program, especially the orgies part. Yeah, and, and of course, all those sacred relics with like silver crowns and gold crowns and everyone gets a crown. And then there's the famous Alexander Campbell. And Alexander Campbell is the son, I forget what the guy's first name was, um, but the famous Campbell that was kind of the initiator of the of religions. But Alexander Campbell, 1788 to 1886, he is uh, well Are you known. Sure this isn't the same person? No, no, no. His I think his dad is the originator of like the Campbellite uh, religion, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, but this is his son, I think. I, I could be wrong, but I think I'm guessing so. it's he, but uh, okay. Dan Vogel can correct me in the live chat. And then so uh, he goes about, he, he's kind of, su- yeah, Thomas Campbell is the father. Uh, he just put it on the screen there. Well, so Alexander Thomas Campbell, Campbell was the one who was the, the bi- well, anyway, okay, he's the okay. one I'm Thomas Campbell's with. the originator. Alexander Campbell, though, is, is a huge proponent uh, yes. within religion and has a lot to say on various uh, groups that start up. And he's kind of a skeptic of all these restorationist groups. Um, oh, they're going to fight back and forth. I love it. So Alexander Campbell lived from 1788 to 1886. Um, and in his book, The Christian Baptist, uh, edited by Alexander Campbell, this is what he says. And it says that he read, I, he goes, I read sometime since of a revival in the state of New York. And then he says about it. That enthusiasm flourishes. And then he says, this man was regenerated when asleep by a vision of the night that a man, that man heard a voice in the woods saying, thy sins be forgiven thee. And a third saw his savior descending to the tops of the trees at noonday. And Alexander Campbell is essentially telling us that he is hearing of these kinds of visions all over the place. This was three that he heard in one revival in New York. Um, but essentially these would have been happening on a regular basis all over uh, upstate New York. And all three of them sound like Joseph Smith at different points. Yep. Yep. Um, so the trees, the tops of the trees at noonday, you know, so we've got kind of that language again, heard a voice, um, you know, in the woods. Here's one I really love. I, I couldn't got a find, picture. I couldn't find a picture of James. No, no, Brewster. this is the picture. I love the picture with the braces. This is James yeah. Brewster. I just wanted to find a picture of a 10-year-old kid so that you can picture this story. By the way, this is one of the crazy – one day we're going to do an episode on the 10 craziest stories in Mormonism, and James Brewster has to make the list. Probably Albert Carrington, too, if you know what I mean. But James Brewster is at least one of them. And in 1836, at the age of 10, Brewster began to claim that he had been visited by the angel Moroni and also delivered a sacred text from God. By the way, that was news. I knew of James Brewster. I knew at 10 he claimed to speak to Moroni. I did not know that he had delivered a sacred text from God. Uh, In November 1837, due to his persistent claims of being a prophet, he's 11 at this point, Brewster was disfellowshipped from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints at age 11. You heard that right. 11 years old. Can you imagine a 10-year-old proclaiming to talk to Moroni and trying to outdo uh, outdo Joseph Smith and claiming to be the prophet to usurp uh, Joseph Smith's authority? 
No, it's amazing. But this is why W.C. Fields refused to go on stage or in film with children and animals. <laughs> Get him out that? of here. He's going to be sucking up all the oxygen in any room he gets in just because he's a little kid with braces. And everybody's going to look at him and say, oh, he's so cute. A 10-year-old. Trust the children, Bill. Trust the children. Joseph Smith's going around town trying to be the prophet, and he can't even stay out of the way of a 10-year-old who also thinks he's talking to Moroni. It's incredible. I'm glad they excommunicated that little twerp. Yeah, get rid of that son of a gun. Um, but but I tell us talk- about the text, the <laughs> yeah, book, gonna, the new thing. I this. never heard of this either. Me either. So uh, if you go onto the Joseph Smith Papers website, hit their magnifying glass to do a search, type in James Brewster, there's about 10 different references in the Joseph Smith Papers that have to do with Brewster. And this is one of them. This is the journal, December, 1842, June, 1844, book one to uh, 21st of December, 1842 to 10th March, 1843. I don't know what any of that means. There's a thousand of those in the Joseph Smith Papers. He published a book called the book of Esdras. I love it. Oh, you're, you're muted. RFM. I was just saying, yeah, that's what Dan Vogel is telling us that he published a biography of this little kid and uh, maybe into his uh, mature life. Cause apparently he lived for quite a while after getting excommunicated, but Dan Vogel tells us it was the book of Esdras. And I was just saying, which is an interesting title since it appears in the Apocrypha, both first and second books of Esdras, which I understand is the Greek form of Ezra. This is a 10-year-old, a 10-year-old who is doing this. So in this thing, this is uh, Joseph Smith dictating, of course, because this is in his handwriting, but he's dictating sort of the day-to-day minutes of what's going on in the church. It says that John Darby came in and said he was going to California. And uh, James Brewster and his following are going to go to California. And Darby comes in to tell the prophet Joseph Smith, I'm going with him. And so Joseph said, I will say as the prophet said to Hezekiah, go and prosper, but ye shall not return in peace. And then he says, you, and then he crosses it off. James Brewster may set out for California, but, and I love this line. This is a great line from Joseph. Uh, set out for California, but he will not get there unless somebody shall pick him up by the way and feed him. Now, remember, this is a 10-year-old kid. So what Joseph Smith is saying is, you know, you know, damn it, fine. Get the hell out of here. But if that kid's going to lead you as the prophet, one of you guys is going to have to throw him on your shoulder and somebody's going to have to feed him along the way because he's just a 10-year-old kid and, and damn it, he's not going to be able to take care of himself. Do you know what occurs to me? Little Brewster, you know a passage from Isaiah I'm sure he used. And a little child shall lead them. And a little child shall lead them. Mm, look at that. Um Brewster, so then he talks about Brewster, but he's talking about Zephaniah, so some relative of James Brewster. Zephaniah Brewster showed me the manuscripts. And so at first I thought, this is just going to be a few pages of something, right? But then then listen to what Joseph says. I, um, and he crosses off I, and then it says he, I don't understand that. He inquired of the Lord, and the Lord told me the book was not true. This is Joseph Smith speaking. It was not of him. If God ever called me or spoke by my mouth or gave me a revelation, he never gave revelations to that Brewster boy or any of the Brewster race. Wow, the whole race. Yeah. So whatever, and by the way, uh, Dan, since you're in the the, uh, 
group chat, if there is any place where I could read the book of Esdras, I would love to take a look at what young James Brewster came up with as a 10-year-old. Because if it's anything near profound, to have a 10-year-old writing that in comparison with people claiming that there's no way to write books like this and Joseph is such an anomaly, it would be interesting to see that a 10-year-old wrote a few chapters of really cool sacred scripture text. Yeah, it was like so, that Dragon Trilogy about 20 years ago where that kid, was it Chris Paolini or some kind of name like that? Very precocious, wrote this massive trilogy um, about dragons and stuff, got made into a huge bomb of a movie. But um, yeah, kids can do crazy things. Yeah, kids do the darndest things. That's true. So uh, James Brewster is another person who had visions. Uh, so that was sort of interesting. And then... We get to the last one. This is my favorite. And this is, and I, I got to start off by explaining when the 1838 account was written. Uh, this is a story about Thomas Marsh's son, James. And so the first thing I wanted to try and establish, I was talking to you earlier today. I said, I wanted to know if there was any way I could pinpoint when the 1838 account of the first vision was written. And the church in the Joseph Smith papers and in another BYU document gave this information. And it's, you know, and the other thing too is you and I were having some conversation about how the 1838 account is sometimes called the 1839 account. And it's because in 1838, there is an attempt to write the history. And then Joseph gets in some legal trouble. So he ends up, I think, in jail in Missouri or something. Well, and, and at the end of October uh, and beginning of November, 1838, yeah, he gets arrested. But before that, the charges and the workup to him going there takes a few months. There's some legal process that just took some time for that to happen. And so on May 2nd, 1838, they started this uh, manuscript of the history. And uh, pretty soon they had to stop. Joseph was in the legal trouble. He goes to jail. On September 3rd of 1838, um, and I just want to get the Mulholland name right, I'm, so I'm looking because I thought I had it in here. James Mulholland. James Mulholland restart, rewrites what's already been written into a new draft. And that new draft is 1839. But the text from which he is copying over that we no longer have, the text that he was copying over is the 1838 first draft of this history. It was started... On May 2nd, that's an important date, May 2nd, 1838. And we know that that first draft had to have ended sometime before September 3rd, because that's when James copies it over and continues the project, James Mulholland. But almost certainly, the majority of that first draft would have happened on the front end closer to that May 2nd, 1838. Okay? So that's the window. Here's what we have. James G. Marsh, son of Thomas Marsh. He was born 31st of May, 1823, to 8 May, 1838. And in the uh, kind of the recorded minutes of the day-to-day -day happenings of the church, on the 8th of May, 1838, the day he died, there's a record in the minutes of him having lost his life. It says there, on the bottom half of that middle paragraph, that middle section with the line above and the line below. 
says, uh, on yesterday, our beloved brother, Thomas B. Marsh, lost his son, James, who died near the close of the day. The lad and lads crossed off. Brother, though young, adorned his profession as a saint of God and died in the faith of the everlasting gospel. So this is then put over into the elder's journal. This obituary makes it, which is pretty interesting. Thomas Marsh is the one who prints and publishes the elder's journal. It's kind of cool that on the very same page as the obituary is the other information that we need, which is who's involved with the elder's journal. Thomas Marsh is the one who prints it and publishes it. But notice above there, it is edited by the prophet Joseph Smith. So the obituary of James G. Marsh, son of Thomas Marsh, appears in the Elder's Journal, May of 1838. And here's what it says. The red underline on the left, but I made it larger so we can read it. It seems that the Lord had respect unto this lover of righteousness. For when he was about, when he was but about nine years of age, he had a remarkable vision in which he talked of the father and many of the ancient prophets face to face. He spoke to God the Father and many of the ancient prophets face to face and beheld the Son of God coming in his glory. Around the same time, in the 1835 account, uh, around the same time, Joseph Smith in the 1835 account declares for the very first time that he's seen two beings. He doesn't name them, but the 1835 account says two beings appeared to him. That's happening essentially in the same time period. We don't know exactly when. We don't know if one came before the other, but we know they happened almost at the same time. That, that as Joseph is writing his 1835 account for the very first time claiming he saw two beings, nine-year-old James Marsh, who's among the Mormons, is also claiming to have been visited by God the Father and Jesus Christ, and to have also spoken face-to-face -face with many of the, of the ancient prophets. And then again, at the same time, Smith is dictating his 1838 account, James Marsh, uh, James Marsh's experience uh, via his obituary is now making the rounds again among the Latter-day Saints. I re I'm really bad at math here, okay? But let me see if I can correct the record at all. So if James Marsh is born in May of 1823. 1823. Then he would be nine years old, May 31st of 1832. Oh, 1832, right? I put 1835, yes. sorry, 1832. Right, so in other words, he's telling this story right around the time that Joseph Smith is writing his first version of the first vision where he only sees Christ. Yes. And then three years later, and thank you, by the way. So folks, if you're watching the screen, let me say that differently. So that, cause RFM is right. In 1832, when Joseph Smith is writing his first, first vision of just seeing the Lord, James Marsh is nine years old and he's speaking face to face with the Holy prophets. And he beholds and talks to, Heavenly Father, face to face, and he beholds the Son of God coming in his glory. Three years later, Joseph Smith, for the very first time, mentions that he is visited by two beings, but he doesn't name them. If you go read the 1835 account, RFM and I were talking about this at length this week. He does not name them. 
Then when he dies on the 8th of May, his obituary goes into the Elder's Journal, which is published by Thomas Marsh, but edited by Joseph Smith Jr. In the same time that Joseph Smith is for the first time saying that I saw two beings and one looked at the other and said, this is my beloved son, hear him. Actually, Dan, it actually works uh, stronger in my favor, just FYI, because three years before uh, Joseph Smith claims he saw two beings for the first time, James Marsh is already ahead of the game. Can I say something here Please. Uh, and just insert the fact that if this is all correct, and by that I mean what's being reported in the obituary, I see no reason to doubt it, but that young James Marsh is reporting seeing the father, which is what the obituary says. This could be one of the reasons that in September of 1832, Joseph Smith receives a revelation in which he seems to be brushing either young James Marsh back away from the plate or others who may claim to have seen the father. Because that's where he says in the rather famous passage that, where is this here? Let me put this up on the screen. What You're on DNC section 84, correct? Yes. And it was received. Oh, stop it. I'm sorry. I'm talking to my computer, which is trying to get me to do things that I don't want to do. I'm just trying to find where I have it. 84. Yeah. Yep. Section 84. It's received in September of 1832, which would have been right around the time this was happening. If it was happening when James was nine. Uh, and this is the one that says, um, verses 19 through 22. And this greater priesthood administers the gospel and holds the keys of the mysteries of the kingdom, even the key of the knowledge of God. Therefore, in the ordinances thereof, the power of godliness is manifest. And without the ordinances thereof, in the authority of the priesthood, the power of godliness is not manifest unto men in the flesh. Then the specific one, verse 22, for without this, i.e. the priesthood, and the ordinances of the priesthood. For without this, no man, James, I'm looking at you, no man can see the face of God, even the Father, and live. Yeah, and the date on that, September 22nd and 23rd, 1832, this almost certainly would have been after James Marsh had his experience. Yes. Yeah. Hmm. So James Marsh, and then and then again, the obituary is making its rounds. And at the same time, Joseph Smith is writing his 1838 account, where for the first time he indicates that the two beings he claimed he saw in 1835 are specifically, and again, he doesn't name them here either, other than he has one of them turning to the other and saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. And we all understand that to mean Heavenly Father and his son, Jesus Christ. It's happening at the same time that this obituary is making its rounds. Yeah. Interesting. It's very interesting because when I read it this way, I start looking at what's stated in DNC 84, which we just talked about. Not so much as just this original idea, which for some reason God's really anxious to get across to people at that time, but it may be more reactive on Joseph Smith or God's part to make sure that everybody understands that nobody is seeing God the Father. Nobody's doing that and living through the experience unless they have the higher priesthood and the ordinances that pertain to it. And those are governed and administered exclusively through Joseph Smith. 
Right. So if it can only happen in the church that you could see God the Father, then whoever stands at the head of that church gets to maintain authority because nobody else has a claim. Right. So I can see him looking at uh, James and all these other people who are making all these claims and saying, no, you don't get to see it because you couldn't have seen God the Father and lived. So it must be a false vision, really, is what the implication is. Yep. Yep. And then we've got Richard Bushman again. Bushman talks about the 1832 account. And I just find this line interesting because Bushman says, I find the 1832 account more credible than the other accounts. And he even says like the 1838 is a polished account. It's most likely uh, either collaborated with or written by Sidney Rigdon or George Robinson. Um, he goes, the 1832 history, we know because we know it's his because it's his handwriting. It comes rushing forth from Joseph's mind in a gush of words that seem artless and uncalculated, a, fl a flood of raw experience. I think this account has the marks of an authentic visionary experience. And I only want to go ahead. Yeah. How, how would Richard know? Because he's read all these other accounts of visions being had in the burned over district during the second great awakening. And they sound just like those. But if that's correct, then he would have to be coming down on the side that the others are authentic visionary experiences. I just yeah. wonder what is his basis for saying this? It's a completely subjective kind of thing. I mean, he puts facts on it, but why do those facts amount to it being authentic? That part I don't get. I know yeah. he comes down on the 1832 account as being the most representative of what Joseph Smith actually experienced. Although I don't know what the heck Richard Bushman then makes of the fact that Joseph Smith elaborates upon that 1832 account experience in 35, 38, and 42 to have all sorts of additional things going on, including God the Father showing up and bunches of angels as well in the 1835 account. Yeah. What does he do with that? If the yeah, first one's if the first one's the authentic one, what does he do with Joseph Smith elaborating and adding all these details that actually are inauthentic? Yeah, you'd you'd have to ask Bushman. I don't know that he would want to answer that question maybe directly, but it Maven, seems as though he Maven, are you there? Yeah, would you get Bushman on the line? <laughs> no, dial yeah. him up. Let's see if we can get him on the air. Let's see what happens. Uh Bushman seems in this because he even finishes off he says it is a classic announcement of a prophet's call and i find it entirely believable again if you read between the lines what he's saying is i discount the other first vision retellings and i put more weight on the 1832 account and when he says this has the marks of an authentic visionary experience it's because he's read the other 33 visionary experiences in the second great awakening in upstate New York in the burned over district and Joseph Smith's telling in 1832 seems to go right along the lines of what those folks are saying. And can I just say one other thing? I mean, I love Richard Bushman dearly, but I must be brutal where he says at the end, is this from his book? Is this from rough stone rolling this quote? No, he, this was in a ask me anything on Reddit that he did about seven years ago. Oh, okay. Well, you're trying to get those out quickly, you know, so maybe we shouldn't hold him to every line, but why not? He, he was typing it. out his answer. So, but yes. Yeah. The, this thing at the end, it is a classic announcement of a prophet's call. And I find it entirely believable. There is no prophetic call in the 1832 account. I just don't understand why he's saying that. All there is, is Joseph Smith is concerned 
for his the welfare of his soul. He's already figured out there's no Christian church on the face of the earth by his study of the Bible. Goes to the grove. Jesus appears and Jesus forgives his sins, period. There is no prophetic call. That's it. Yep. So he'll have to, we'll have to leave I mean, it up to Bushman. Who's there's definitely a prophetic old. call by the 1842 Wentworth letter account. Yeah. But that's but really that one, the first time a prophetic call appears to my recollection. But that one Bushman doesn't see as, as credible. Yeah. Hmm. That's not easy being a church historian. Right. And then I just wanted to note a couple other little things here. And then I wanted to turn some time over to you for some of your thoughts here as we wrap up. Uh, this is the uh, accounts of the first vision. And it's kind of hard to see. So again, I can I can make it big here. Oh, that's not, let me do something else here. So essentially what you're looking at is the different accounts of the first vision on the left-hand side of the, of the graph. And then on the very top, you have the... Uh, particular uh, items uh, that occur in these visions, pillar of light, personages, mind taken away, struggle with demonic powers. And what you notice is that essentially no two accounts are consistent. Every account differs in some way from every other account. And some of these are quite significant. For instance, as we've already pointed out, Bill, can I just interrupt you for a second? Please. That's what proves it's true. Right. The that's fact that none of, them, none of them line up with each other. That proves it's true, Bill. Is that how it works in a courtroom, RFM? Hell like, no. Witnesses can't agree? It only works that way in apologetics. It does not work that way in a courtroom, believe me. And it's bad enough if witnesses disagree. That makes it hard enough in a courtroom. What if the same witness disagrees over and over? Yeah, I've himself? had that happen with my clients, believe me. And it's probably it's a lot harder fun. case to a lot harder case to win. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you, the juries that I've encountered are not very receptive to the argument that all the inconsistencies in my client's recollection of his story is what shows that he's telling the truth. <laughs> That's a pretty quick guilty yeah. verdict. And again, some of these are, as you pointed out, 1832, he already knows all the churches are not true. By 1838, he doesn't know if the church is, which he doesn't know that there's not a true church on the earth. He's asking which church it is. 1832, he only sees the Lord, Jesus Christ, we assume. And 1835, he sees two beings, but he doesn't name them. And in 1838, for the first time, he indicates that it's Jesus Christ and Heavenly Father, though though sort of ambiguously, right? Um, right. I guess it's pretty clear that if you got two beings that you're seeing and they're all shiny. And one of them looks at the other one and says, this is my beloved son, hear him. Then the beloved son guy is probably Jesus. And the one saying it's my beloved son is probably the father. By the way, when G when Joseph Smith sees God the father and Jesus Christ in 1820, has he been given the priesthood and received the ordinances of the gospel? Not according to any understanding that I have. Which would mean that D&C 84, verse 22, for without this, meaning the ordinances and the priesthood, no man can see the face of God, even the Father, and live. Right, right. Well, this is okay. the problem. When you're brushing other people back from the plate, sometimes yeah. you end up brushing yourself back from the plate, too. <laughs> he actually no. beamed little James Brewster, whoever the hell it was who said that. Was it James Marsh? He beamed James Marsh 
and he gave up a free walk to first base. Yeah. He's undercutting his own his own theophany that he's going to be talking about yeah. later, especially in 1838. Yeah. It's really hard to keep track of all of these threads, I think, for anybody, even Joseph Smith. Yeah. And that has, of course, become a huge chestnut in the church, right? Yeah. Doctrine and Covenants section 84 says that you can't see the face of God the Father without the priesthood. And yet Joseph Smith is going to relate that he saw the face of God the Father in 1820, way before he got the priesthood or any of the ordinances thereof. Yeah, and and remember too, this has connections in us in some ways to the idea that Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. Because again, nobody gets to see God the Father. God the Father is way off in the distance, and he isn't interacting. Hence, why the God of the Old Testament has to be Jesus, who is the uh, uh, mediary between the people and Heavenly Father. And this also then has connections in sorts to Adam God. Because that's also a way to, it's a theology that allows us to put God the Father off in the distance. Elohim is heavenly grandfather, and he's way over there. And Adam is God, and Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. And we have all this kind of confusing theology that, because people are trying to reconcile ideas like D&C 84, verse 22. Right, and then you get layered on top of it. The only time you see God the Father is when he's showing up to introduce his son, Jesus. Yeah, but you can't see him without the ordinances or the priesthood. Right. Right. Uh, other things that are dissimilar, various accounts talk about uh, having some kind of exchange with Satan who binds his tongue. Is that the 1835 account you said? Uh, 1838, I think. Okay. 1835 talks about Joseph hearing the sound of what he thought were footsteps behind him, but he jumped mm -hmm. up and looked around and didn't see anybody there who would have made that noise. And remember the earlier vision we shared from one of these other folks who also had a rustling of leaves and had their and tongue I, bound. And I believe that because of the 1838 vision three years later where Satan takes front stage and this huge fight that he has with Satan, that it is tended to be read back into the 1835 account that the sound of the footsteps must have been Satan. Yeah. And then you... Um, uh, oh, I and thought then Satan didn't have a body. No, and but you could offer to shake his hand and that would tell you. Well, how does he make sounds of walking without a body? I'm just asking right. for a friend. Right. Okay. And, and then 1835 has him also seeing concourses of angels, but none of the other uh, First Vision recountings have that. And you and I were talking, the middle one, that 1835 account, is sort of unique because Joseph Smith's in a pissing contest with Joshua, the Jewish minister, uh, who's also known as Matthias who also happens to be a, I think, a serial killer out of uh, out of uh, uh, the East Coast uh, who was known as Robert Matthews. Yeah, there was some suspicion that that was he. By the way, I just wanted to mention to you, I did a little more research on that bill. That yeah. account was not written by a scribe then or later. Apparently, it was written by Joseph Smith. Oh, that 1835 account. Yeah, or maybe gotcha. dictated. It all gets squishy with Joseph. But yeah, he was directly involved in that being recorded the way it was recorded, I think. Gotcha. And then, um, in fact, I want to do one more thing. I'm going to put a video up here. Let me... And this was uh, from that LDS discussions conversation with Mormon Stories. They played a bit from John Larson, and John tells us all of the places that we should have heard from people that Joseph Smith had a first vision. These are the folks in early church history 
who were close associates with Smith or members of his family, and we get nothing. I'm going to go through notable non-mentions. So I, I, what, I, what I, Joseph Smith claims in this vision and in others more forcefully that he was persecuted for this, that this was an important thing that he told everybody about. This was the heralding of the church when you read the canonized version. All right, I have, I have a list of things that never mention this. All the local newspapers, there's, never, there's no mention of, of the first vision. Alexander Campbell, if you remember, Alexander Campbell was the man who Sidney Rigdon was a disciple to, and Joseph grew the church in, incredibly in Kirtland by taking Sidney Rigdon's Campbellite congregations and their buildings and everything and converting them over to Mormonism. Joseph, Alexander Campbell hated Joseph Smith with a passion and didn't much care for Sidney Rigdon and investigated and researched the church a lot. He dug up every piece of garbage he could find on, on, on um, Joseph Smith. No mention of the first vision at all. E.D. E. Howe, 1834, the very first really um, established um, Mormon ex, ex, expose, right? The first anti-Mormon book. No mention of the first vision whatsoever. Uh, J.B. Turner, 1842, Mormonism in all ages. No mention. No mention of the first vision. Doesn't, it doesn't even exist. John Whitmer was first, the first one assigned to write a history. Did not mention the first vision. There's no mention of the first vision whatsoever. Um, John Carell was, replaced um, John Whitmer and was the 1839 historian. No mention of the first vision whatsoever. Sidney Rigdon, never mentioned in any of his writings or any of the things that, he, that, that the first vision ever happened. Apparently unaware of it. Evening and Morning Star was the, the official church publication where we got all, almost all the, the Book of Commandments was, was taken from the Evening and Morning Star, and they printed it on the Evening and Morning Star print, printing press. It was the, the big newspaper from 1832 to 1834 was overturned. No mention of the First Vision whatsoever. The Latter-day Saint Messenger and Advocate, no mention at all of the First Vision. And we're not talking about just the, this account, that it happened at all, that it was even part of anything. Uh, the Book of Commandments. First published Book of Commandments, no mention of it whatsoever. Of course, the Book of Mormon doesn't mention it, nor does the Doctrine and Covenants. So you have all, everything we have about early Mormonism that has no idea this event ever took place, right? Now, remember, I just read to you that President Hinckley said, this is the key issue. This is the thing that all the church stands on. And the church is either false or true by what happened in the first vision. And these guys don't even know what happens. Well, it gets worse than that. Um. The church during the the early period of the church, the first vision when it was when it was mentioned was always mentioned as an angelic visitation. It's not even mentioned that God came in. There are several notable people who were in the church inner circle who know, knew Joseph Smith, participated things, who wrote about it. And before the 1870s, whenever they wrote about the first vision, they always identified it as an angelic vision. They never mentioned God. They never mentioned Jesus. Those individuals include Oliver Cowdery, Martin Harris, Orson Pratt, Parley Pratt, Orson Hyde, William Smith, Lucy Mack Smith, George A. Smith, Heber C. Kimball, Brigham Young, John Taylor, who later changed it, but after 18, 1870s, and Wilfred Woodruff. All of those people when they mention the first vision, only mention it as an angelic visitation. Okay, there's John. Okay, there's John. L hey, here's what I want to know, Bill. What I want to know is what is Maven laughing about so much? She has just been tickled pink during this uh, playing of yeah, the, we the see video it. of John Larson. And I'm wondering what it is. Can you, 
Can you help tell us what it is you're laughing about so much, Maven? I put it up on the screen. Um, the uh, uh, the quote from Gene. <laughs> He's asking Bill if he if he begged John Dillon to use this clip. Little inside joke there, maybe. It's, oh it's my called, goodness, Gene, it's called fair you use. Are bad. Fair use. I'm going to report fair you use. to Rick Bennett. Yeah. Um, and someone else was asking what the Gordon B. Hinckley quote was, and I believe oh. that's the one um, you know where he says that it's either this all fraud. happened or the church is a fraud. Yeah. yeah. So that's that's a summary of the quote, not the exact quote, but that's that's what was being referred to. So yeah. Don't, don't you find that remarkable? Joseph Smith has the first vision. It it ushers in the restoration, and nobody prior to Joseph Smith writing it down for the first time in 1832, ever mentions it. And on top of that, 10, 12, 15 people who do mention Joseph Smith's foundational experience call it an angelic visitation or specifically name him meeting with Moroni or Nephi as the heralding in of his authority to start a new church. Yeah. It well, those are the angels. I mean, it's Moroni. I know he gets called Nephi in the 1838 account, but it's basically, it's Moroni or Nephi. It's angels. It's always angels up until it's not angels anymore. And as we pointed out, people within his own community are saying that they saw God. They saw Jesus. They're having visions face to face with the Christ. Um. It seems as though all the evidence points to the first vision being backdated into 1820, but never having happened. And Joseph Smith seems to pull it out of whole cloth, as Elder Holland would say. Mm -hmm. Your thoughts? I want to talk with you and Maven, too, and all the people who are watching, um, because I'm not able to articulate this idea as well as I would like. But I do know this happened to me, and it's probably happened to a lot of people, which is Joseph Smith. I hear the Joseph Smith story. Of course, it's the 1838 version that I'm getting from the missionaries, and it's in the scriptures. And I'm just thrilled with it. I'm overwhelmed by the power of it. I have a testimony. It's true. But apparently part of that testimony is based upon the belief that I have that this is unique and that Joseph Smith is unique in claiming this experience. The only reason I say that is because when the time came that I started becoming aware of all these other people claiming to have very similar experiences in Joseph Smith's time and place, I felt let down. I felt that that impacted my testimony in some way. And that's the part that I'm having difficulty articulating. It's like it goes from being something that's special to something that's less special and more common. As if the specialness of it in some way indicated to me that it was true. And I'll give you another analogy here. I'm glad Maven's joined us because the same thing happens with Jesus, right? Jesus is the Messiah uh, and everybody loves him. And we've got the four gospels and we read all about it. And he dies, gets resurrected. He's the Messiah, the Messiah, the Messiah. He's prophesied and then he comes. Yes. So we know all of this, right? But then I start finding out as I do Bible research that Jesus was not special. He was not unique in making this claim and that lots and lots of people were claiming to be the Messiah and most of them were meeting the same end as Jesus. Well, without the resurrection bit at the end. 
but they were getting crucified as well. And when I found that out, I had a similar emotional response to that. And maybe that's the problem is it's kind of emotional. I'm not sure I've got it figured out in my head. But once again, Jesus goes from being a person making these unique claims to just one among many people making these claims. And Maven showed up. Did you have anything that you wanted yeah. to add to this to articulate this better for me? So when I first learned about other similar visions, it only troubled me for a little bit. Um, that's probably because I was a lot more faithful than you. <laughs> but Doubtless. I quickly realized, I quickly realized that um, it actually, it actually increased my testimony because it just proved to me that again, Satan knew, uh, of course, who Joseph Smith was. I'm sure he recognized him from the pre-existence, and so he knew that something was coming up soon. He knew he was that that Joseph Smith was going to be the prophet of the restoration. So he started, you know, appearing as an angel of light giving all these false visions to everybody else just to really throw the wrench in to, to God's plan. And, you know, for when the real prophet came. So it's just, you just need faith RFM. And that is one of the responses to it. Absolutely. Which is okay. They're all wrong. Everybody's getting the fake stuff except for Joseph Smith. And it may sound like all the fake stuff, but that's because Satan and Joseph Smith is the true thing. Right. But the only other way you can go with that, I think is um, well, from a faithful perspective is that, well, Joseph Smith isn't the only one receiving a true vision from God and that God is really working with all these other people. But that makes it more difficult for me to figure out how Joseph Smith is true and why God is intentionally trying to muddy the waters and make it harder for people to figure out that Joseph Smith is the right one. So I like your your result. But yeah, but, did it say instead and not God? How long it's, did that it's the duck thing again? If it looks like a duck, walks like a duck, quacks like a duck. It's one of Satan's counterfeits. But totally one of Satan's counterfeits because that guy knows ducks like nobody business. He does. He really knows how to copy one. So, Maven, at what point, presuming it ever changed, at what point did that explanation that you came up with stop holding water for you? That's a good question. I think when when everything else kind of fell to pieces, honestly, um, when I lost my faith, I think so, so, so that wasn't something that like before that I, you know, started to trouble me. It was something that I put on the shelf, but I, you know, I justified in that way. Um, and, and, it, and that was good for me. So it, it stayed there until it was all, until it all came crumbling down. Then, then I had the ability to retrospectively, you know, look at that thinking and be like, well, that was some bullshit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but so, I went. so if Joseph Smith had a claimed vision, and lots of other people in Joseph Smith's milieu had visions. And you recognized that uh, Satan can put out counterfeit visions. And now you have to deal with whether Joseph Smith's vision is true, which you believe in, but the other visions you think Satan has tempted, or if RFM's argument that all these visions are true, and hence why did God lead some of these people to create other churches out there or to not join Mormonism or to be strictly opposed to Mormonism or to go off and do their own path. You have to figure out which one's true and which one isn't. And then you started, as you said, Maven, you looked at all the other evidence and all the other evidence is monumental. It's so far outweighs that the church isn't what it claims to be that at that point, you were able to look at this first vision and go, it's no different than the other 20 guys who had one, and it's no more true than than theirs, 
And it certainly doesn't mean that Joseph Smith's a prophet and that he started the true and living church. Right. Yeah, there doesn't seem to be any basis to discount some of these visions in favor of others or all of them in favor of one. Yeah. And I think, too, I, I until today, really, I didn't know how many they were there were and how common it was. So honestly, I feel like the first time I heard it and went through the gymnastics to justify it, I wasn't even sure if, if it was entirely true and not just an anti-Mormon lie. But even if it was true, it was definitely Satan. So I think, I, you know, it's again, it's why look more into it? There's a part of your brain that just knows it's only going to cause you trouble. Got to turn it off. Like a light switch. Yeah. Got to turn that off. And I've talked about this before, but it's only been more recent that I actually have been able to articulate in some way that feeling you get as a true believing Mormon when you're finding out stuff and you start the, the spidey sense starts tingling and the, the red light starts going off in the back of your brain. And it's telling you that if you continue down this path, some bad things could really happen. You could find out some really negative things that are going to hurt your testimony. And therefore, you stop where you are and you turn your attention to something else that's not going to hurt you. Yeah, I want to. This is a tangent. I just thought of it now, and so it has nothing to do with today's topic, but it's another point that can be easily made. Um, somebody had this comment: How did anyone determine that Satan is the bad guy and Jesus and God are the good guys? Now, here, let me just throw this out: Satan is the tempter. He's the person who plays the role of giving us all thoughts in our head and compelling us or encouraging us to do bad things. And if Satan is necessary to the plan of salvation, all Satan would have to do, and obviously it wouldn't take much, it'd only take one of us humans to say the idea if he hadn't thought of it, and he would now be aware of it. And the idea is that Satan could literally go, I'm just not going to participate. And if Satan didn't participate, then there wouldn't be any temptation or good and evil, all that stuff, right? Then the apologists come in, and their argument is you don't need Satan to have there be temptation. But the moment you say that, then all this idea that Satan is existing, which is also a part of the concept in Mormonism, actually isn't true. We don't know if Satan is participating or not. He may have jumped off this game a thousand years ago. We wouldn't know. And hence, it is absurd when we make the claim in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Satan is a real person who is actively doing things against Latter-day Saints. Because if he has half an IQ of 100, if he's, if he's got an IQ of 50, he could figure out that if I just don't participate, then there is no adversary. Well, this is why it's always important to choose an overachiever to be Satan. Yeah, there, there are lots of overachievers who stop overachieving at some point. I, yes. I really do like the question, though, and it is an interesting one um, when you consider, especially looking at scriptures um, like in the Garden of Eden, when you realize that God really set everyone up for failure and it's Satan is the one who's telling the truth, whereas God is actually the one lying to Adam and Eve um, or misrepresenting what's going to happen to them. And it's God Satan is the one who's trying to keep them in the dark. Yeah, he doesn't want them to have knowledge. And um, the, the Tower of Babel story, the real issue there was everybody cooperating. That was what got the gods, gods upset 
because then they will be like us again. So we've got multiple gods there concerned that the humans are working too well together. And if they work too well together, there's no end to what they can accomplish. So we got to mess this up. It's just, it's, it's really funny how in the scriptures, it does seem like it's God, you know, doing all the, um, really bad kind of evil things. And I, I just want to share actually something here real quick. This was something that came out um, right at the beginning of the pandemic. Let me see if I can get it. <laughs> Maybe not. Um, hold on one second. Is this some I kind of meme? It. it is a meme. So let me just see if I can get it. If, if Sorry, guys. people work too well together, they may not need religion. Right. And... It's just it's just such an interesting thing that um, God would see that as a problem and something that he has to deliberately go in and uh, and mess around with. So um, here we go. This isn't the best share, but can you guys see it? Oh, yeah, put it up um, on the screen. I need to put it up. Yeah, here we go. Um, I'll take that off. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. So it this this came out at the beginning of COVID. It just it's God that handles the floods, plagues, and pandemics. I just handle orgies and metal bands. And this isn't the exact one that I saw at, at first, but I did think that it is kind of interesting. It is God in charge of all the natural disasters. Apparently, these you know punishing people, um, and killing so that, babies, I, I, women. Yeah. Right. It's definitely interesting question that as a believer i i would have thought it, just even the suggestion um that the, the good and bad were flipped would be i i just couldn't i couldn't even entertain such an uh, like a horrific idea that satan could be a good guy and and god could be the bad guy that would be the um that would have been just too heretical for me to even to handle yeah. but it's a fun one now I was just going to put up here the last little thing. Fact. Joseph Smith never said anything. By the way, you and I talked about this this week, RFM. Dan Peterson and others point to some three-word thing in the DNC to claim that Joseph was talking about the first vision earlier. But as you and I both said, like that just doesn't have any weight. There's there's nothing. There's It's not strong enough or credible enough to to push it forward as the most reasonable way to see it. Yeah, that's Document and Covenant, section 20, verse 5, but I'll get to that in a minute. Gotcha. I just want to say your fact. Joseph Smith never said anything to anyone about a first vision until he was 26 years old. By the way, the church didn't use the first vision in its material until when? Do you know, RFM? I think it was the 1930s. 1960s. 1961, I think is when they first sent missionaries out with the first vision as something to utilize in their proselyting effort. As far as the missionaries? Okay. Yeah. Uh, 26. At age 29, he decided he had seen two personages, not just one, but he doesn't name them. And at 32, he finally says for the first time, he's not only saw two beings, but their heavenly father in Jesus Christ. Yeah. All right. So your thoughts, my friend, and I'm going to go ahead and put up the banner for the uh, phone calls. Okay. I'll just say a couple of things here. And these are all courtesy of Dan Vogel. You and I were both talking on the phone uh, in preparation for the show and wondering why is it that Joseph Smith in 1832 is writing for apparently the first time an account of the first vision in which he mentioned seeing just Jesus as opposed to Jesus and God the Father. And why is it that he's apparently backdating this vision from 1832, 12 years 
1820 or so. So that's the question that we had. And I came up with some really bad answers. And I thought, you know, I got Dan Vogel's phone number in my cell phone. So I gave him a call yesterday. I was very happy. He picked up and I asked him the question and he gave me this information. So if any of this information, uh, if you don't like it, please blame Dan Vogel and not me. No, I'm serious. Seriously, if if I get it wrong, blame me, not Dan Vogel. So here, there's just a couple of things that I want to mention that Dan Vogel pointed out to me. Very, very important. First off, well, let's go to Doctrine and Covenant section 20 for just a second. This is given April 6, 1830, when the church is organized the very day of. So is section 21, by, this, by the way, the same date, April 6, 1830. It's in verse 5 of section 20 where Joseph Smith says, after it was truly manifested unto this first elder that he had received a remission of his sins, he was entangled again in the vanities of the world. Okay, that's the verse that Daniel C. Peterson is putting all his eggs in. That's the basket that what he's putting all his that, eggs RFM? in about the first vision. I'm sorry, what? What verse is that? Five. Verse five. After it was truly manifested unto this first elder that he had received a remission of his sins, he was entangled again in the vanities of the world. Okay. And this occurs in verse five. And after he starts talking about Moroni showing up in the whole book of Mormon and gold plates thing, right? He doesn't say he saw Jesus here. What he is recounting is a standard kind of conversion experience where he receives a remission of his sins. Now, if you go to section 21, verse one, same day, Behold, there shall be a record kept among you. We hear that one all the time, right? And in it, thou, you, Joseph, this is God talking to you, Joseph, in it, thou shalt be called a seer, a translator, a prophet. We all know that, right? And an apostle of Jesus Christ, an elder of the church through the will of God the Father and the grace of your Lord Jesus Christ. But the, the apostle part is what Dan drew my attention to. How is it that Joseph qualifies to be an apostle on April 6, 1830? All right. Now let's take that, put it to the side for a second. Because I've been on a mission. Lots of people have been on a mission. We've had Bible bashes with Baptists or whoever they are, right? And the question almost always is going to come up when you're a Mormon defending your faith against somebody else. Because you talk about, we've got apostles on the earth today, right? And the argument comes up, well, what about Acts chapter 1? Because Acts chapter 1 says that in order to qualify as an apostle, you have to have personally seen Jesus Christ. And there's also the example of Paul, who apparently becomes an apostle through a vision he has of Jesus Christ. So there's this kind of double connection. And I'm not going to argue uh, that point or whether it's necessarily valid, but that argument definitely comes up all the time. So how is it your apostles are apostles unless they've seen Jesus Christ? Well, then you get into this whole thing about, you know, have they or haven't they? And the Mormons believe typically that they have their apostles. It's with us to this day, but it's not something that only occurs in this day. This argument has been going on for a long time. So the question then becomes, how does Joseph Smith qualify as an apostle on April 6, 1830, when the church is organized in section 21, verse 1, if he has never seen Jesus. Boom. That's the question. Same argument. And now I'm not actually making this up because one of the apostles, 
this gets confusing, right? One of the quorum of the 12, the first quorum of the 12, William E. McClellan, who was baptized into the church in 1831. So prior to the 1832 account, which is what this is all talking about, why did Joseph Smith backdate the 1832 account of him seeing Jesus to 1820? So William McClellan, who's writing a history in 1878, so it's late, but he writes about, um, and this is quoting from, I believe it's Dan Vogel's book. He sent me a nice uh, text with this quote in it. So this is the quote, despite having been called as an apostle in 1835, William E. McClellan, who left the church in 1838 and was apparently unaware of Joseph Smith's first vision in 1878 when he questioned how Smith and Calgary. So this is the question. How did Smith and Calgary, how could they call themselves apostles? Because they were, and now we get to the quote from William E. McClellan, because they were witnesses of the true translation from the plates the Book of Mormon, but not witnesses of, but not Jesus Christ in any sense. He goes on, for them to make such a profession about being an apostle was simply false in every sense of the word. They could not be apostles of Jesus unless they had seen him, period, end of quote. And this is found in um, the William E. McClellan papers, 1854 to 1880, Salt Lake City Signature Book, uh, 2007, page 404. If you have that and want to look it up. So this idea that Joseph Smith and Oliver, but I'm going to focus on Joseph right now because we only have so much time. He couldn't be an apostle because he hadn't seen Jesus. I think it's fair to speculate that this isn't an idea that only came to William McClellan in 1878. And it's also fair to speculate that William E. McClellan isn't the same person who would come up with this rather obvious question. It's a famous argument. That's why I talked about missionary experience at the beginning. So if Joseph Smith is aware of this argument that he can't be called an apostle on the day the church is organized in 1830 because he hadn't seen Jesus, it would make sense for Joseph Smith to take this prior spiritual experience, which he had before Moroni came, he had some kind of spiritual experience, some kind of conversion experience. It was very common, still is today. Say the Lord's Prayer if you don't believe me and you'll find out. That he takes that experience now, and in 1832, when he's writing his history, he overlays it or fleshes it out to be a vision where he sees Jesus telling him that his sins are forgiven him. Guess what? Now he's an apostle because he did see Jesus before the church was organized in 1830. So I may leave that there for now. There's a bunch of other things that Dan talked to me about. Uh, I am so honored that he would give me so much of his time and his expertise. Uh, I just really want to thank him. I, I hope he's still listening. Thank you so much, Dan. You told me a lot of stuff and taught me a lot of things. And this, this whole complicated area of church history started be, to become more clear to me through speaking with you. Um, I'm also gonna say this, okay? I'm gonna add this part because that's 1832. And the good thing about Joseph Smith coming up with this backdated experience of seeing Jesus is that lots of people were making that claim so it didn't seem outlandish, right? The bad part of that or the negative side of that story is that lots of people were claiming to see Jesus. In other words, the good thing about it is also the bad thing about it. 
The good thing is a lot of people saw Jesus. The bad thing is a lot of people saw Jesus. So if Joseph Smith becomes an apostle by seeing Jesus, then by the same token, couldn't anybody else who claimed to have seen Jesus thereby assume an apostleship? It would make sense. And so it seems that between 1832 and 1835, early 1835, when Joseph Smith is revising the revelations in the Book of Commandments for publication in the Doctrine and Covenants later that year of 1835, that's why he adds into what is now section 27 all the stuff that was nowhere present in the same revelation in the Book of Commandments from 1833. The verses and verses and verses about how John the Baptist showed up and gave the uh, this Iranic priesthood and Peter, James, and John show up and ordain. By the way, Bill, are you still with me? Mm -hmm. Finish that sentence. Okay. Now don't look at section 27. Okay. What does Joseph Smith, what does the revelation record? Peter, James, and John. This is the addition. Now, what does it record? Peter, James, and John ordaining Joseph and Oliver to? To the Melchizedek priesthood. To of the course, office, that's what we think, but that's not what it says. The office of elder. No, no, no. I was shocked. It doesn't say either of those things. Section what? 27. Let's go to here. 27. Okay. What verse? Well, that's a good question. Um, I'm not sure I even uh, copied and pasted that one. I wasn't planning on going here. Let's take a Let look see if here. we can find it. Here we are. Yeah. Verse 12. Yes. What does and it say? also with Peter and James and John, whom I have sent unto you, by whom I have ordained you, and confirmed you to be apostles. Boom, and baby. A, and that's special, what was important. Yep. And this is where, by the way, if you remember, Oliver Cowdery gave the apostles the first apostolic charge. And the charge was to work your entire life until you've seen Christ, because only seeing Christ makes you actually an apostle, right? So, but somewhere along the way, that wasn't working out. Nobody was seeing Jesus. Not enough. So then... Hugh B. Brown says the apostolic charge changed, and that's when it became this whole thing of uniformity and unanimity, and, um, and and no matter who disagrees during a meeting, everybody leaves and has to say the same thing. This whole idea that the top 15 in the church are special witnesses, not of Christ, but special witnesses of his name also comes from this. But yes, ordained apostles and special witnesses of his name. Right. And just to be clear on the record, in 1835, when Oliver Cowdery is given the apostolic charge, he says, if you haven't seen Jesus, you should never stop striving until you have seen Jesus. So yeah. you can bear testimony of him, um, which is the apostle's duty. Right. But no so, longer. Not anymore. But the thing is, the key, the key that Dan Vogel showed me is it's not Melchizedek priesthood. It's to be apostles. So in 1832, if this is all correct, Joseph Smith backdates his first vision, seeing only Jesus. So that he can qualify as an apostle under the Acts chapter one standard. Yeah, he's got his timeline all left up, doesn't he? Right. And now, three years later, when they're adding this material to this revelation, what appears to be happening is now he is going to put additional, um, well, it's too broad. If you just see Jesus, you're an apostle, way too broad. Too many people can claim that. 
Joseph Smith doesn't have control over who claims to see Jesus. But what he can control is a direct confirmation by the laying on of hands, which had become common in the church by this point, 1835, that he got it directly from Peter, James, and John, the top dogs of the original apostles. So now he's ordained to be an apostle in 1829. Remember, it also has to be before the church is organized. That's why it's put before 1830. But now, through this means Joseph Smith is able to claim exclusive rights and ability to confer the apostleship or to uh, moderate or, uh, I'm sorry, I'm losing words here. Uh, he gets to control it. That's the word. He gets to control who gets apostleship because it can only come from him because he's the only one who got it from Peter, James, and John. So no longer is it just seeing Jesus. Now it's just Joseph. Now you don't have to see Jesus to be an apostle. You have to see Joseph to become an apostle. And he has to lay his hands on you in order to confer that authority. So I thought that was absolutely fascinating that uh, this seems to be the case. And this seems to be the development that's going on. And also the other thing that Dan Vogel pointed out to me, or I got it through my research anyway, all of this early history of the church is going on against the backdrop of intense questioning and challenging of Joseph Smith's ability to be the president of the church or to be the governing authority, especially by the saints in Missouri. And that's a whole nother story, but there's definitely motive here for Joseph Smith to need to establish his authority over and over again to show that he is actually over all the other offices that he's creating willy nilly and having two churches, one in Ohio and one in Missouri with the same kind of structures. Okay, that's all I'm going to say about that tonight. But I think that it's all starting to make sense to me. And it's kind of hard because I have to keep two timelines going on in my head at the same time. One is the, the correlated idea about John the Baptist in May 15th, 1829, and Peter, James, and John a few months later, or a few weeks later, which is what we learn, and how it is that Joseph Smith set it up to be, at least by 1835. Six years later. So Joseph Smith has a track record of describing visionary experiences that he says he had years ago that people never heard of before he talks about it. That was William McClellan and David Whitmer who said, we never heard anything about Peter, James, and John before the mid-1830s. And they were there. Right. They're on the ground. They're watching. They're interested. They're 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 going on missions. They're they're true believing members of the church. So Joseph Smith has this track record where he seems to do it. And even Richard Bushman allows for it looks like, you know, he might be backdating this Peter, James and John stuff. So if he already has a track record of doing it, it shouldn't surprise us if he did the same thing in 1832 with his first vision account. Boom, period, end of sermon. Thank you. Yeah, no, no, I love it. And let me add one more thought. And then if you're okay, we'll take some phone calls. Yeah. Folks, I, there is one phone call already in the bank, um, but it is 662-667-6667 uh, or 662-MORMONS with an S on the end. And uh, I just want to note here before we go to the phone calls, 
if again, and I know I'm, I kind of am a broken record on this. If we're going for the most reasonable conclusion, it's the one that requires the least amount of allowances and the least amount of conjecture. And if I make note of the fact of all the people John Larson said did they never mentioned a first vision, along with all the people who didn't mention a first vision, but understood the foundational event of Mormonism to be Joseph's visitation with angels. Then all of those who had a vision that we talked about tonight, how similar they are, how some of them might have been very well in Joseph Smith's awareness. Some of them were even in his hometown that he was living in. Um, and they had visions very similar to the language he years later uses. So that's two things. Then you combine that with Joseph, how late he is in sharing his first vision. And you combine that with the four accounts in all the discrepancies in them. And then combine that with the fifth thing, which is the points you're making about why these changes happen and that they don't make sense when they're all uh, juxtaposed against each other. Uh, and by the way, by the way, I always show something. This is something Maven made me. Uh, this is something I keep on my desk now. Uh, so now I'll never get it wrong again, but plausible, plausible deniability. Oh, you're, you're muted. I, I have, to, I'm going to jump in before uh, catches it. <laughs> um, it's from my friend. Um, uh, she lives there or uh, close by, I guess I won't out where she's living, but um, she's kind of crafty with these things. So I, I did not make it. Um, shout out to uh, my best friend from high school. Yeah. Awesome. So anytime you're tempted to use that expression in the future, you can just look at the plaque that um, it's right here below the from high school. Made yep. I just, so if you see me look down and say the word, that's why. Perfect. You told me somewhere in my past I got off track, and now I'm steering hard left to get back on the road. I love the comments. You posted this on your Facebook. Yeah. And I remember, I, I don't remember who it was, but they they, they were like, eh, I've heard it both ways. And yeah, man, yeah, only from me. Yeah. <laughs> so with the four things I mentioned, plus the stuff you're saying, RFM, the question becomes, what is the most rational way and in, in to see the first vision and what you end up with, if you're going to be serious about the data is that jo Joseph Smith is bullshitting you all the way. I will tell you that I have spent 40 years of my life as a member of the church, uh, immersed in history, doctrine, apologetics, and I have worked very, very hard to fool myself. Yeah. And people have a hard time when you have a belief that you want to be true, you will make lots of allowances and you'll leave lots of room for conjecture and you'll choose something less than the most reasonable explanation. But remember, anything less than the most rational explanation is irrational. It looks for all the world like this is made up in like four or five different ways. Yes. And when added together, you suddenly meet up with that that old guy in the alley called Occam's razor. Yikes. Is he Italian? Okay. Uh, he can be. Okay. Cause I don't want to meet an Italian in the alley with a razor. All right. So are you ready for some phone calls? Apologies to our, all our Italian listeners. Yeah. All right. Let's see here. If this is Jacob, I think, are you, are you good? RFM, we do, do the call. Yeah, please. Okay. Jacob. 
Jacob. So let's make sure he's on the line here. Jacob, are you there? Oh, let me try to switch you over to. Give me Maybe a second. Maybe he has an allegory. Let's try that. Can share with us. Are you there, Jacob? Holy smokes! Is that Bill Real and Radio Free Mormon? I can hear you. Who? Who's? What is it? I love you. Awesome, my friend. What can we do for you? Glad we you love you show. too, Jacob. But remember, you love us oh, because we loved you first, Jacob. Oh, you calm down. Okay. Oh snap! Yeah, dude, I love you guys so much. So my brother Danny. Oh shit! I love, sorry, sorry. I, he left the church over uh, the different First Vision accounts and a couple of the a couple other Joseph Smith issues in the polygamy area. Um, say what? You yeah, go ahead. We're still friend. here, Jacob. Anyways, I'm sorry. I just got so excited. I I just lost my breath. It's okay. Take a second. Anyways, yeah, yeah. I, sir, I have a brown paper bag handy. So take it easy. Yeah, no, I lost I, I lost my faith after going on a mission. I got all sort of colitis. I removed my records, got rebaptized, and then I begged eight other bishops to let me get baptized again, and then I watched your show and realized the church wasn't true. You guys train wrecked my whole world. Oh man. <laughs> well, you're welcome. Oh, but you're laughing. Yeah. You're laughing about it. <laughs> Certainly, oh, all you've done oh, is reaped misery that. all the days of your life since. Oh, I'm grateful now, but yeah, you assume. know, it, it really was mind blowing as I've I've continued to learn about the history of the church, and I, I, I there was this episode I watched it was called LDS Force, I believe, some gentleman named Adam. I struggled from the exact same thing that man struggled from. And I strive to be perfect in this church. And it destroyed me inside. I mean, I would just crawl up in bed in a ball and just be miserable. I wouldn't even hang out with nobody because the strength of youth told me, basically, you know, if they don't, if your friends can't help you to live the gospel of Jesus Christ, then they're not your friends. And so I couldn't associate with nobody. I couldn't have a job. I couldn't do nothing. And it just blows my mind that I allowed something like this religion to just tear me down this hard. And I'm grateful for what you guys do. And I love you guys to pieces. And RFM, if I ever need a lawyer, I'm hiring your, uh, your, your Jacob, website. Jacob, you can't afford me. So anyway, Jacob, what I want to tell you, seriously, Jacob, what I want to tell you seriously, okay, can you hear me right now? Jacob, you are good. Okay, hang on. Listen, okay. You are good enough as you are right now. Thank you. Jacob, isn't it weird? You lose your testimony in this church that uh, ties so much of itself to the relationships in your life, your friends, your family, your 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 feelings of being a part of something bigger than yourself, and you lose your testimony, and everybody backs away from you, and then they and then they also tell a story about how you're sad and miserable, and no wonder why it has taken all these things from you that you weren't expecting as you lost your faith. It's really heartbreaking to be honest. I lost a lot yeah. of people because yeah. anytime I act like I care, people are like, oh, it's back. And then when I don't care about the church, 
oh, he's just being a sinner. I'm like, dude, that's not right. You can't win. That's not right, dude. There are some games that you can win only by hey, refusing I don't, I don't to play, to, Jacob. I don't want to take any more time. Thanks, hey, Jacob. Jacob, Jacob, I, don't want to take any more Jacob, time. I love you. You're fine. Love you. I just want you to hear what I said because it was so damn brilliant, okay? There are some. Are you ready? This is my second mm. thing for you. Okay, write it down. Mark it, Elder Rigdon. There are some games you can win only <laughs> okay. by refusing to play. Yeah. Mm. I love you guys. Thank you so much for what you do. My family, we appreciate you. And God bless you. I don't even believe in God, but God bless you. Dave. Thank you. Sorry for I don't me. believe in God either, and I'll take it. I love you guys. Have a great day. Thanks. Have you. a wonderful evening. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Thank you. That's a good phone call. By the way, I, I was being a smart ass because I knew his answer was by his little giggle that he was happy. Most people, once they get through the dark night of the soul, once they get through the grieving process and the figuring out like, who am I now? And how, what do I do on Sundays? And, and how, how do I, what's my identity and who are my friends? Once they figure out the dark night of the soul, most people are happier and less burdened than when they were in the church. The church capitalizes on that brief moment when shit falls apart. And there's a few people that feel like they were happier in, no doubt. But far and wide, the church capitalizes on that moment where you feel loss and you, you're you untangling all this shit that Mormonism was and you're refiguring out your identity. And Mormonism goes, look at this, look at this, look how miserable they are. Look at, they've lost the spirit, they want to sin. And, and what it does is it uses that. But if it would just skip ahead, like Elder Holland would like to do sometimes, if it just skips ahead, the church could acknowledge that most people, when they leave and they have enough time to process it, they end up less burdened. The weight is off their shoulders and they're more happy and content and fulfilled and have healthier well-being than when they were in. I just saw an article that was published by a church uh, sponsored or related magazine about general conference coming up this weekend weekend and warning people that lots of times members of the church go there they listen to it and they get all guilt-ridden believe it or not hmm. it was like a warning that? to them and say hey it's okay you know I, I don't understand why people would feel guilt-ridden after listening to general conference in 10 hours if you're not good enough just the boredom of 10 hours of prophets seers and revelators saying practically nothing is an and again suicide no no jokes suicide is higher in Utah during the time around general conference than other times of the year. And, and, I, and, and part of the joke is the boredom of having to watch that thing, but they say things. Then the, the honest part of it is they say things that are deeply hurtful that make you feel like you're never going to make it. And hence this whole journey in the gospel is pointless. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Next call is Jeff. Jeff, are you there? Yeah, I sure am. Go ahead, my friend. You're on Mormonism Live. Hey, I love your guys' show. I generally never get into a place due to business travel to actually watch you live, which I'm doing tonight. But I love love your show. And I think um, where I'm coming from tonight is uh, I've been struggling with my faith journey. I've reached out, I actually, I think, to a couple of times with you guys and some of the other podcasts. And I, uh, my wife went through kind of her faith journey and one day got angry enough and went to um, quitmormon.org and sent her information in. And I've been in high callings in the church and bishops uh, a couple of different times. And 
So immediately I started getting text messages from my local leader, who's my neighbor here in Utah, worried about my eternal salvation. And so I've been wanting to release myself from all of this craziness because I feel like an idiot after I'm a very successful individual uh, of a large company on the East Coast, but live in Utah. And so I'm, I thought I was smart until one day I woke up and realized there was a dang rock in the hat. What the heck was that about? Or uh, polygamy or all those things. And so over the weekend, I hammered out an email to send to my bishop. And my wife said, you don't know anybody, any explanation. You just need to get the heck out of there and free yourself from this pressure. But of course, I've got elderly parents. I've got neighbors. I've got all four of my kids have served missions. They're all upset. Uh, well, they're not all upset. Let me say my oldest son fought a number of tours on Iraq and Afghanistan and doesn't believe in God. And I just can't seem to let go. I don't know what it's got a hold of me, but I'm, I don't know what I'm scared about because I'm actually a 58 year old man who just needs to get the heck out of this place. But every time I, I turn around, I just feel this um, grief, this pain, this anger. Like I've gone through every emotion and I just got to get the heck out. And my wife says, you don't know anybody, anything. But I stamped out a two-page email to my bishop, letting him know all the reasons. And then, of course, I'm a fiduciary for a large company on the East Coast. And I would have been fired, probably fined, relegated from ever making investments in 401ks again for my organization based off what the church recently did. And that was kind of the last thing for me. So yeah. I I guess I'm just calling to, to get your your thoughts. I don't know you, but I listen to you all the time, and I feel like you're my neighbors. So Man. that's why I was calling tonight. So Jeff, um, first off, I would say, look at Jacob that called just before and notice how he also expressed how hard the dark night of the soul is that moment where you realize things aren't what they were claimed to be. And you have to kind of reconstruct your entire outer world and your inner world. Right. And notice too, that, that he gets on the other side of that and things are good and he's grateful. And at this point, I've been doing this 10 years. RFM has been doing this longer than that. Um, doing, doing this space of talking to people who are working through questions and doubts. My, my, uh, again, I'm one person, my anecdotal evidence, but at this point it's a thousand people. It's probably a few thousand people, almost everyone. And again, there are exceptions, but almost everyone when given some time to work through it is grateful they're out. And they, they feel they're, they, they are thankful for all the things that contributed to them being able to wake up and take it apart. And you, all I would say is give yourself whatever time is needed and take your time. Like if you want to spend a year or two trying to figure out if it's true or not, go for it. If you want to uh, stay in church and, and burn out slowly, go for it. If you, if you want to walk away today, fine. My two cents would be Spend as much time deconstructing Mormonism as you need, but when you're ready, there's a big, beautiful world out there full of wisdom, full of light and truth, uh, and those voices are screaming uh, advice and thoughts and ideas, and all you got to do is just turn around and instead of facing the church, face that beautiful world where there's a lot of really good uh, material that helps us to be more a more healthy human being in a world that's based on reality rather than a myth that did a lot of harm to you. Yeah, no, and I appreciate that. I, I actually, um, you know, I, I was a, a bishop in the 
mission field, as they call it, for over 10 years. And I, I sat face to face with uh, President Hinckley, President Monson, multiple apostles. And I, when I went through this, I woke up one day and I thought, how could I have been so stupid as a professional executive for a company? Did I not see this? And uh, so I've totally, uh, I think I've checked myself out of it, but now I've realized because we live in Utah in a Mormon community on a cult of sac. And so we've become, I've become the, the selected, I've gone to the dark side individual. And I think my personality is, uh, I, I don't want people to hate me, but at the same token, I, I think I heard one of your podcasts or maybe with John DeLynn where one of the guests said, you got to find your people and dance. And we can't find yeah, them. Find your people and because dance. people judge you, mm. and it's horrible. It's horrible. Um, I want to so. say I want to say one more thing, and then RFM, I'll, I'll let you. Sorry. The, pro- the problem when you dance with the Mormon leadership is they insist on leading. Yeah, all the time, and they don't have anything to really give you. They're not good at dancing, and they're stepping on your toes. Yeah, it's like Elaine Bennis. Yeah, dancing. You, you said Jeff. I no. feel like a dummy. You said I feel stupid. Because you're this late in life and you figured it out. And I, I hear that all the time from older folks, older than me, who figured it out later in life. And what I would say is that most people don't figure it out. So if you figure it out, whether you were 20 years old, whether you were 16 or 13, like uh, uh, Thomas McConkie when he left Mormonism the first time, whether you're 30 years old, whether you're 67 years old, whether you're 84 years old, the fact that you woke up speaks volumes about your ability to confront your comfortable beliefs and ask the question with an awakened mind, what if it's not true? And almost, almost no one does that. Like the folks that are all in, most of them end up all in. They stay that way. There's a small percentage of people that wake up and whatever age you were, you ought to, uh, you ought to uh, pat yourself on the back uh, and realize as long how wise as it happens that was. Before you're dead, you're ahead of the game. Amen. By the way, I, I thought <laughs> no, I, Jeff, I really, I really appreciate that. And I thought you were talking about maybe a struggle you were having about whether to write out the reasons for your departure or not, and your wife favoring the not I part was, of that. It's sitting in my draft. Uh, yeah, it's sitting in my draft uh, folder. I actually signed it, and it's been sitting in there since Saturday night. And my wife's like, "You don't know anybody, anything," and That's I'm true. about ready to hit. And I thought. She's been right all along 38 years. I should probably listen to her. Well, except when she married you, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's a joke I would say on myself. Sorry if that sounded rude. I apologize. Yep, you're all right. You're all right. <laughs> I have at least two wives who've made the mistake of marrying me. So having said that, I did some research. So I'm not going to tell you what to do with your letter or anything. But I did, while you were talking, do a little bit of research because it made me think of a quote from Thomas Jefferson about why he wrote the Declaration of Independence. And this is what he says. It's really pretty short, but it's beautiful. It also appears in the musical 1776, which is why I know it. He says, "Um, this was the object of the Declaration of Independence, not to find out new principles or new arguments never before thought thought of, nor not merely to say things which had never been said before, and here's the quote, but to place before mankind the common sense of the subject in terms so plain and firm as to command their assent. 
So I, I don't know if that helps you make your decision awesome. one way or another, but I thought I would just throw it out there for what it's worth. Sweet. No, I love it. You guys are amazing. I enjoy your podcast. I love the historical aspect. My wife gets tired of me listening to it, but that's where I connect from a brain perspective is the historical issues. I'm not into any of these other issues of yeah. social issues, but the yeah. historical things just take me back. So I appreciate it. And I appreciate everybody that uh, is out there. A couple of questions here for you real quick, Jeff, because you're, you said you're a two-time bishop. I am. Okay. So I just have, uh, do you remember when you were bishop the second time? I'm just curious. This has nothing to do with tonight's conversation, but I, something I've always wanted to know. Once a bishop, always a bishop. Do they set you apart as a bishop or do they say some other sort of words that reactivate the bishop mantle that you already have that hasn't gone away? Yeah, they reactivated it. So I was called as a bishop while President Hinckley was in. So I have my bishop certificate from that. And then they reactivated. And I was lucky enough to get called as bishop in the same place twice. So there you go. Yeah. And then I I guess I did such a great job. (laughs) And then um, somebody messaged and said they had some thoughts that would be helpful to your son. And Maven has that person's contact info. So I was going to say, sure. if you are, are you on Facebook at all? Uh, my wife is, but I'm not, but I follow you on YouTube and then on podcast. Okay. If you will somehow email us or um, go ahead. Sorry, I, yeah. I, I always try to do the brand thing too, uh, but you're, you're so much faster. Uh, my email is pretty easy. It's the amazing maven. At gmail.com. Why can't you say that without laughing? That's what I I know. (laughs) I just just amazing think about actually having to like tell it to people, but I'm I'm keeping it. I'm keeping it. I'm going to keep working through this every time I have to say it. But yes, Jeff, if you want to email me there, the amazing Maven at gmail.com. We should put that on her that little name tag on the screen. The amazing Maven, not just Maven. By the way, Jeff, before you go. Uh, I want you to tell your wife hi for me. By the way, thanks so much for calling Jeff and sharing that. But tell your wife hi for me and tell her for me to quit giving you such a hard time about listening to our show. Would you do that? And I I, I sure will. Her her thing to me is, haven't you heard enough to just get the hell out of there? And I was like, I just love love some of this stuff. And uh, it makes me sad when I when I have some of the topics that you have, because when I was bishop, I would have people do to people ever, ever. So yeah. I'm really sad that people took advantage of others. It's horrible. Yeah. Well, you know, different people process things differently. Mm-hmm. Some are easier. Uh, typically, yeah. typically, those who are less committed to something, whether it's a relationship with an organization or a person, they're less committed than get over a breakup faster. Not always the case, but in generalities, people who are more committed take longer to get over the breakup and they got to process stuff. And then on top of that, Mormonism is just frankly a fascinating subject, which is why I'm still neck deep in it. Yeah. Um, it, yeah. One other little no, thought. I, you guys are awesome. I don't, I donated to you guys last year too. So uh, thank I'll you. Keep that, uh, this we year because it. it was well worth my money. We love so. it. One, one last little thing. I'll yeah. let you go and we'll move on. But you're asking about sending this letter and I know the, I know I get it. Like the, the purpose in sending the letter is to, to tell these people that you loved and served and you, you know, they're your friends and you want to share with them that you weren't dumb 
that you did the hard work, that your reasons for leaving are reasonable. Um, and you get to send or not send, as RFM said. I will simply say that my experience is that they see it through the lens of you're trying to, you, you've been deceived and you're trying to take them away. Not that you don't get to say your piece still, like you have a right to your story. And if you feel it's important to send it, send it. And if you don't, don't. But recognize that they may not see your letter through the same lens that you're sending it. Yeah, that's a good point. No, I, I'd also, I really agree with you. I would also encourage you to avoid yeah. beginning. I, I, was in, I was indoctrinated. Yeah. yeah of, you know, I was indoctrinated growing up, yeah. right? Everything yeah. is evil. So my letter would be Satan's got a hold of me and I'm obviously out drinking and doing everything that would make me a horrible person. Yeah. Oh, sure. So, You've heard all the stock excuses. Yeah. yeah. I was well, just I appreciate you, you guys. Uh, actually, Jeff, I actually don't know you, but Jeff, I take I, you for a bourbon. So Raider Free Mormon, let's have a bourbon. Hello. Let's have a bourbon. <laughs> and by the way, Jeff, I yeah. would encourage you. I'm going to get this line out eventually, no matter what. I would encourage you to avoid the temptation of beginning your email, dear dummies. You should avoid that temptation. Yeah. It usually turns people yeah. off, I found. That doesn't work well. Yeah. <laughs> thank you, guys. Okay. You thank, thank you. Very you. Much. All right. Take care. All right. Good night. All right. So last one, we'll squeeze in really quick here. And then. Uh, have any I women have called a... tonight, Bill? What's that? Have any women called? No, and I'm supposed to just magically make them call in. I don't. I know. Can, every, everybody understand that calls come in in the order I think in which they are dialed. Is that right, Bill? Unless we have somebody that we're waiting to call, right? Unless Dan Vogel calls and we put him in because we want him to go to the front of the line because we were talking about him calling. And we you never know, something want that like with that. Dan. No. But so, generally, yes, in order. I just want everybody to know, because sometimes I read the live chat the day after, and there's people out there busting our chops for not taking calls from women, and we want to hear women, and blah, blah, blah. So do we. Women. We do, too. So call. Yeah. yeah. Please call. Call early. Call often. All right. So, caller, your name? Uh, is that me? Yeah. All right. Yeah, my name's Kendall. Kendall, how are uh, you? I had a question about uh, doing well, Bill. Thanks. Um, appreciate the show, and both your attitudes it's uh, a laugh and a, a learn every time yeah um in that 1820 period when joseph smith uh, claims the first vision and then there's all these contemporary um uh, uh people having visions um the persecution that joseph smith claims to have gotten like a, the methodist minister like immediately in the days following that uh, the heavens are sealed and, you know, God doesn't talk to people. Was this a common sentiment among the preachers uh, with these other visionaries? No, I don't think so. I don't think there's any reason that the Methodist minister would have been upset with Joseph Smith for saying this, unless it's for the same reason that Joseph Smith was upset with little Brewster for talking about, you know, his visions because he's a little kid showing him up. I have no idea. But uh, Bill, and if Dan wants to call in now or give a comment, I don't see why there's any reason that a minister would say that visions are all of the devil unless he believes that, right? He's of that line that thinks, no, there are no visions. There are no ecstatic, ecstatic, ecstatic experiences. There's no gifts of the spirit today. That's all back then. And there's none of that today. And if he ran into a, a minister who was of that persuasion, then yeah, maybe he would say that. Because that's the way some churches believe today, right? 
Maven, did you have a thought? Yeah, um, it, people have put it in the comments a few times um, because it, it's interesting that our colors tonight have, uh, are in similar situations. So Thrive is an option to find people near you. It's thrivebeyondreligion.org. Um, there's usually conferences once a year. We actually just passed that, so you just missed the, the big ones. But there's also a lot of mini groups that are localized in your area. So we, it, there's definitely a lot in Utah. But even if you're not in Utah, you can find other ex-Mormons who are processing this and are looking for friendship and support um, if you go there. So thrivebeyondreligion.org. I believe that's what it is. It might be .com. Uh, and, and you can find a lot of resources there to connect with people near you. Um, so I did want to go ahead and throw that out. That's a great resource for meeting others in the same Sweet. headspace that you are. Thank you, Maven. Can I just add to that that there's an open question as to whether Joseph Smith is relating anything that really happened or whether he's inserting this idea of telling a Methodist minister and being made fun of, plus the additional persecution he says he received for telling the story, which is nowhere, there's no evidence that he ever told the story before 1832, but in the 1838 account, he's talking about all this persecution and everything. Is that something that really happened? Mm -hmm. Unlikely, or is it more likely that he is inserting in his narrative a latent excuse for why it is that he didn't tell anybody about it for over 10 years. Yeah, the it, it, it I sure connected as a, a, a young person that with that part of the story that, man, he was so persecuted uh, and for, like this 14 year old boy getting so much attention that had to be, you know, the adversary um, working hard against this great light that was about to come to earth. Um, yeah, anyway, it's, uh, it's been quite the journey seeing all this unfold. Jeff, can I just mention, I'm sorry, Kendall, can I just mention one other thing? Joseph Smith on many occasions, and I haven't documented them all. Maybe somebody has, maybe Dan Vogel has, he was not averse to gaslighting his audience. And one of the things that's the most famous one to mm -hmm. me isn't about a visionary experience, but it's in 1844. When he's talking about the plurality of gods in the Godhead, that there's a Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, there's a plurality of gods. I think this is the Sermon on the Grove. It may be the last sermon that he gave that's recorded. It's after the King Follett Discourse. But he's preaching on the plurality of gods. And then he makes the astonishing statement that he has always taught the plurality of gods for the last 15 years. That he's always taught the same thing. Well, 15 years is back to 1829. That is not true that he's taught the plurality and the separateness of Father, Son, and Holy Ghost since 1829. We know that. We know that 1835 is the, um, the Lectures on Faith, and Lecture 5 talks about two beings, and one of them being spirit, that's the Father, the other one being Jesus with a body of flesh and bones, and there is no Holy Ghost. We know that the Book of Mormon talks about there being one God. So Joseph Smith is not averse to taking something that he's teaching in 1844 and telling his audience, I've been teaching this from the very beginning. And I guess, hope, hoping, expecting his audience to believe him, to go along with the gaslight. I know I did when I read it. The first time I read that, I thought, well, it must be true. Joseph Smith said it. And obviously, if it weren't true, somebody would have said something. So I went along with it. But I'm not so easily gaslit now. Yeah, I'll just note too, Kendall. One of the other things that goes mm -hmm. to what your question was, 
this idea that there was a revival in a certain time period, there's a lot of, so first off, there's, I don't think there's any existing evidence other than Joseph Smith's word that he told ministers and they gave him a bunch of shit for saying so, right? That he saw Jesus. And another example of Joseph Smith backdating things or changing dates on things is the, the revivals when they were happening in his backyard. And there is strong evidence that they didn't happen in the years he needed them to happen, but they happened several years before and several years after. And hence he's taking a revival that happened in his neighborhood on one year, but in order to accommodate his story, he pushes the revival to the years that he needs it to be. And the evidence is pretty strong that that's the case. Right. And one of the other things that happens in that 1838 account of the first vision is that Joseph Smith comes back home and he leans up against the mantle. And what does he tell his mom? She says, are you okay, Joseph? What does he say, Bill? Do you remember? I'm, uh, well, I'm well enough. I, I, something I know, I've learned for myself. I learned for myself that none of the Presbyterianism yeah, Presbyter- isn't true. Why is he telling that to his mother when his mother didn't even join the Presbyterian church until after Alvin died at the end of 1823? Mm. You see, there's a lot of conflation mm, yeah. of different things going on. The revival, point, which is very much, I think, a part of the process. But everything from different time periods is getting put together in Joseph Smith's recollection or at least the way he's presenting the 1838 account of the first vision. Mm. Beautiful stuff. Um, Thinking about uh, Lucy, what about um, Joseph Smith senior when, you know, he's like crossing the, the, uh, let's see. Oh no, I'm confusing the first vision with the Moroni accounts. Yeah. I guess I was going to another spot where, um, when he tells his dad, you know, I'm like weak from working or whatever, had these visions and he says that, oh, they're from God. Is there any, um, in like Joseph Smith seniors, um, accounts or diaries where he, you know, mentions any of this Moroni stuff or, or that moment when Joseph can't work well because he's so tired after having seen Moroni three times in one night. The, the only thing I know of is that, Joseph Smith's mother recounts that Joseph would sit in front of the family and tell the stories out of the Book of Mormon before the Book of Mormon had been translated. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm not aware of Joseph Smith uh, writing an awful lot. Yeah. Okay, my friend. Thank you. Hey, thanks. You're free and Bill. Appreciate you. Have a great day. Thank you so much, Kendall. Gene Judson is now saying, I remember 20 years ago, I lent RFM $20. Well, Gene, I remember that too. But fortunately for me, the statute of limitations has passed. (laughs) Uh, Anything else, my friend? No, but I've had a great time tonight. What a great show that you put together, Mr. Real. I'm just grateful to have been a part of it. And Maven has been down there. There's this little box at the bottom of the screen that you folks at home can't see, but I can see where she's not on the screen, but there's a little box where I can see her sort of, it's like through a a glass darkly. But she has been laughing herself silly throughout this whole show. And I'm thinking it's because she's reading the live chat. And I wish you'd come on the show to say goodnight with us and tell us what the hell's so damn funny. Oh, everybody is. So I I don't know. 
I'm just I just like to smile when I'm able to. I there isn't anything <laughs> specifically like recently that I can I can pull up, but um, it's always a great chat and it it feels like family, and I I really appreciate everyone. So we have yeah. the best chat in the business, don't we? I think so. It, it it's we have our regulars and we have people that come you know pop in, and I just I, I just like it. So yeah. Thank you, everybody in the chat, for being you, for being wonderful you. Yep, this is the rowdy crowd from the last Goonie. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, it's true. <laughs> all right, appreciate it, guys. That's all I have to say. I'm sorry, I don't have anything else know, really to add. So. I just want to make yeah. sure everybody in the chat knew that they are amusing <laughs> you to no end. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And and for the folks who love this conversation, love the documents on the screen, you love uh, RFM's insights, you please help us keep doing this for years and years. And it, it, it we give a lot of time. I mean, I probably put, I'm going to guess probably 15 to 20 hours into sitting and looking through things, reading stuff, pulling documents. Uh, it's not an easy task. Uh, and I know RFM spends a ton more time than I do on episodes. Uh, go to mormonismlive.org, click the donate button, send us five bucks a month, 10 bucks a month, 20 bucks a month, whatever you could do. Uh, it means a lot. We're a nonprofit that would be tax deductible inside the United States. Uh, and we survive on donations. That's how we make it. Uh, so if you like this kind of deep dive into the history, uh, please. And for those who are already supporting the program, we deeply appreciate you. You're, you're the secret to why we get to do what we do and feel really good about being able to dedicate this much time to it. So thank you to each of you who, who give uh, money to, to help us keep going. Yes. Thank Anything you. else? Amen to that, Mr. Real. Maven, All right. it's been wonderful as always. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Take it all. easy. Thanks, brother.